February 28th. And to begin this meeting, I would like to start off with a roll call. Council Agency Authority Member Stockton? Here. Richie? Here. Silva? Here. Chapman? Here. Roberts? Here. Vice Mayor, Vice Chair Wiley? Here. Mayor, Chair Carley? Here. Will we uh, please rise, take a moment of silence, and be followed by the pledge? that item three we have the approval of the agenda mr city manager do we have any changes no we do not mr mayor All right, thank you and item number four approval of the minutes any changes or any comments for the approval of our minutes we just did oh we have to approve the agenda too so sorry about that thank you so with that do i have the approval do i have a motion to approve second we have a second. All in favor say aye. Aye. All right. Next, approval of the minutes. Any changes to the prior agenda's minutes? We have a motion to approve and a second. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Thank you very much. Next, we will go on to presentations. Seeing none, item six, we will go to the consent calendar. Any member of the council or the public wishing to pull an item from tonight's consent calendar? All right, I see Councilmember Silva. I'd like to pull the 6A. Okay, and we have 6A to be pulled. Any other item? We only have two items on our consent calendar. So with that, um, do I have a motion to approve the consent calendar excluding 6A? So it would be item 6B. So moved. All right, do we have a second? second? All right, we have Roberts as a second. All in favor? Aye. Aye. It passes. We will move on to business from the floor. This is, excuse me, sorry about that. I'm getting too far ahead of myself. It was consent item, but 6A, we will open that up for discussion. Councilmember Silva. I had you there. Uh, thank you, everyone. So, uh, uh, just a quick question for city manager. Um, this, uh, can we just, I just want to make sure we publicly put out there uh, what this process is. Um, this isn't, uh, we're just moving through the process to go through the motion of uh, announcing the land as surplus. And uh, can you please just explain that? Certainly, Councilmember Silva. So the request before you tonight is a request to initiate the surplus property rules in accordance with the state guidelines for city-owned property there on Brown Street. Um, council is aware that um, we were directed um, to initiate the um, process for um, the next steps in a uh, potential boys and, boys and girls club site on, on that city-owned property. Um, there's also a, a park project that the city is working on there as well. But to begin either of those projects, we need to initiate property um, rules with the state so that we can get that process underway. And that way we can then move to the next steps associated with the Boys and Girls Club project, which is the um, exclusive negotiation rights agreement 
and then so on into the, the further steps. So this is just really to kick things off. Um, those other processes for those other projects will certainly be um, public, open to the public, and we will make sure that the council and commissions and the public receive all those notifications when it's those elements to occur. With that, any other council comments? I will open it up to the public for comment on this item. Seeing none, I will close the item. And do I have a motion? Motion approves the change. I have a second? Yeah. Vice Mayor Wiley, we have a second. And all in favor say aye. 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 Thank you very much. We will move on to item seven, business from the floor. This is the time when anyone from the public wishing to comment on an item that's not on the agenda that is in the purview and, and within this council, you may come forward now. I'd like to thank Sarah first for directing me in here. I was a complete loss. <laughs> Uh, I'm Judy Kelp. I'm from Rio Vista, but tonight I'm here representing Solano's civil grand jury. Uh, we were just recently given a proclamation by your board of supervisors declaring February Grand Jury Awareness Month. So we kind of use that as our kickoff point for recruiting for the next upcoming term. Now, I stress this is a civil grand jury. Forget everything you've seen on Law and Order. <laughs> uh, our goal is to look at things that the counties and cities are doing governmental-wise. Uh, it could be public safety, health and social services. There's something for everybody. Now, uh, qualifications to be a grand juror are really quite simple, such things as being a resident of Solano. I think we could all handle that. <laughs> uh, and your term runs from Jeff. July 1st to June 30th. It's a one-year term. It is a commitment you will need to make. Uh, there are weeks that you will spend a lot of time on it. So if anybody has time and wants to do something worthwhile, this is truly the place to go to. Um, now, I was supposed to have a few other people here with me tonight, and they've got the applications complaint forms with them uh, so I will see that they get here to the city council and so you can display them in the lobby but meanwhile I'll stick around for a few minutes uh, in your lobby so as not to disturb the meeting if anybody has any questions thank you thank you very much A lifelong resident born and raised in Vacaville on Lower Cowan. My reason for being here this evening is to request to have on a future agenda the city's policy as it relates to the city's warming and cooling centers. It was brought to my attention that the city has a standardized operation guideline that is a, in draft form but nothing official. I tried to locate an official policy but was unsuccessful. I did find a press release dated December 12, 2016. 
Being a retired state employee, I know firsthand that the Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation has in place a policy which is called the Heat Contingency Plan, which states, when outdoor te temperatures reach 90 degrees, the inmates are to be offered increased access to water, access to fans, access to portable cooling units, and given ice. Based on conversations that I've had with some of you council members and with the public, it is evident that there is not a complete or clear understanding of such a policy for our homeless in Vacaville. Although my focus is on the homeless of our community, there are other city residents that by having a policy in place for women in cooling centers could benefit our elderly and our children. In closing, it is my hope that we as a community can come together and put such a policy in place and not draft something up, but make it our own for the city of Vacaville. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else liking to speak to the council on business from the floor? work for Epiphany Church cooking and serving the homeless community and also at St. Mary's Church passing out food to the homeless and I drive around every Tuesday with Dale delivering food to the homeless community that can't make it into Epiphany. So as much as I want pickleball to get their own designated courts, many of them in one place and hopefully at Three Oaks, there is a more immediate need, and that is a warming center for the homeless community. Days like today, we're out there in the rain delivering food, cold. Last Tuesday, if you remember, we had that horrible wind. It was freezing cold. I get out of my car for three minutes. They're freezing. And this is at 1.30 in the afternoon. What is, what's the rest of their day look like? They're going to be sleeping on freezing cold concrete. They're going to be sleeping on freezing cold dirt under a tree. Even if they get in a wind block, they're still chilled to the bone. These are people that have had a hard life, whether it's from infancy or whether it's from circumstances. But it's not for us to judge. This is our homeless community. I'm a Vacaville resident, and we need to take care of them. The least we can do is give them a warming center for days like today. There is a freeze warning in effect for tonight. People will be running out to cover their plants. These are people, these are human beings. They need a warming center. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else wanting to address the council this evening? Seeing none, I'm going to close business. Well, go ahead and come forward. I almost didn't stand up after that <laughs> because I do want to talk about pickleball. <laughs> My name is Linda Panario. I'm a Vacaville resident for the past 23 years. Um, I coach soccer and volunteered in the schools, and now I'm a retired healthcare professional. I have skills and time to support our community. And equally as important, I have some disposable income. I also play pickleball. But as strange as that seems to sound to some of you, and frankly, my family, I am one of 8.9 million players in the United States. 
Pickleball is a sport that has had an increase in players of 85.7% in the last year. And it has, a, uh, in the past three years, 158.5% increase in players. And that's reported by the 2023 Sports and Fitness Industry Association. Over the next year or so, I will be deciding where I want to put down roots in my retirement. Vacaville is a contender, but places to play pickleball is also high on my list of requirements. Did you know that many people have joined us on the courts and told us that they really like Vacaville as a place to retire and to live in retirement, but the fact that it doesn't support pickleball or facilities has weighed in their decision to move elsewhere. Interesting, right? All my life, I have been an athlete of one kind or another. Soccer for the first 48 years was very involved in the soccer program here. Um, and, and finally settled on pickleball for the last half or more of my life, I hope. I hope you can see that I am not special, but that I am part of something new, that I hope Vacaville does not miss out on supporting and creating space for people who want to be healthy and play whether they are eight or 80, and pickleball does that. Thank you. Anyone else? All right. Well, seeing none, I'm going to close public this uh, public portion of the meeting this evening. And we're going to move on to our public hearings. Mr. City Manager. Thank you, Mr. Mayor, members of the City Council. This first item before you is a resolution with a variety of different actions um, requested tonight related to our downtown Vacaville Business Improvement District. Tim Padden, our Economic Development Manager, is here to introduce this topic. And then I think he'll be joined by uh, our new executive director from the downtown bid, uh, Mr. Taylor McDonald. So with that, I'll turn it over to Tim. Again, thank you, Mr. City Manager. Good evening, Mayor, Vice Mayor, Council Members. Tonight, the City Council is being asked to consider a resolution confirming the annual levy and collection of assessments within the downtown Vacaville Business Improvement District for 2023. Approve the annual district plan authorize the city manager to execute the management agreement and a fee for service between the city and downtown Vacaville in the amount of $75,000 and approve a one-time budget augmentation in the amount of $20,000. This is a new day for the bid. In April, 2022, the city allocated resources towards a recruitment of a new executive director. After a nationwide recruitment in seven months, we ended up with Taylor McDonald and we're excited to have him on board. Uh, additionally, the city has provided uh, financial resources to several downtown projects in the past year, unlike any other year in the 23-year existence of the bid. Due to limited financial resources through a lack of events caused by COVID-19 over the last three years and additional responsibilities uh, that the city has placed on the bid, an increase for fee for services needed to provide adequate bid services from $55,000 to $75,000. Over the next few months, City departments will meet with downtown Vacaville staff to fine tune a more comprehensive plan between the city and downtown Vacaville, which will be brought back to city council in July. At the July meeting, it is anticipated that an additional $75,000 will be requested to carry out their list of activities and action items with a staff level and city contribution that is consistent with most contributions to a bid in California. This will also allow the new executive director, Taylor, to assess organizational needs as he's only seven weeks into the role. At this point, I'd like to turn it over to Mr. McDonald, who is going to be joined with uh, downtown Vacaville Board of, Pres Board of Directors President, 
Matt Tainton, who will present the 2000 District 3 or 2023 District Plan at this time. Hello, members of the City Council, Mayor Carley. Uh, my name is Matt Tayton, and uh, I am the new president of the downtown Vacaville Business Improvement District. And uh, I am also uh, the owner of the Tweed Hut Music Store, which is located at 359 Merchant Street here in Vacaville. I moved my business to downtown Vacaville in 2013. It's been about 10 years, and I've been a Vacaville business for 19 years. And um, over the last two years, uh, since the uh, COVID pandemic, I've uh, sold over 2,200 guitars. I've done over $3 million in business. Um, business can be done in downtown Vacaville. It's a place that uh, you can be successful in, but I think it needs help. And that's why I'm here. That's why I've gotten involved with this uh, association. Uh, I tell you this because I am a stakeholder in downtown and that we have a new uh, revitalized board of directors that are all stakeholders as well. And it's very important to them, along with our 450 um, plus businesses that we represent, that we create an environment that allows business to prosper even more than it is right now. Um, we are not the same business as usual organization. We have spent the last 60 days restructuring and reorganizing the organization. Um, I know I'm short on time and I need to give Taylor some time to speak about what we need, what we've come here for tonight. But I would like to say just a couple of things. Um, we've already, um, in just the, the short time that we've had this year, we have, um, we have sent three of our members to uh, California Main Street uh, training so that we could better align ourselves with the downtown specific plan and understand how Main Street America works. So we want to be in alignment with the city. We want to help with the downtown specific plan. Um, we have created a properties owner uh, engagement committee, which we have almost fully staffed. Um, our chair is uh, Greg Scholes, who owns Fire Gallery of Fireplaces, which is right on the corner of Merchant Street and uh, Mason. You probably recognize there's like a house right there at one point. Now it's where he sells fireplaces. Uh, we also have uh, Glenn Beto is on the committee, and he's a retired uh, mortgage uh, financial institute professional. And we have Solano Mortgage Management. I'm probably confusing that name. Solano Property, property Management, yeah, sorry, uh, has also joined the committee. So we have some real professionals on there uh, to help us engage with property owners in downtown area. Um, the last thing I'd like to tell you about, uh, we have, uh, we've, we've held our first event for the year, which was the Vacaville Love Stroll. And uh, in comparison, uh, we worked really hard on this. We, uh, last year's uh, event, uh, revenues were $2,600, and this year we reached $7,600 in triple participation. And it wasn't luck, it was hard work, it was uh, cooperation, it was teamwork, and we have a great crew of people that are participating and working really hard to, uh, turn downtown into the type of downtown that I think the city of Vacaville would really like to see. Um, so uh, 
if I can just say one more thing here, on behalf of the downtown business district and the board of directors, and more importantly, the 450 businesses that we represent, their families, their employees, um, I wanna thank you for your investment and your encouragement um, in the search and the recruitment for Taylor McDonald, our new executive director, and I'd like to turn the podium over to Taylor now. Thank you, thank you for your time. Hello everyone, nice seeing you all. I've met uh, most of you. Um, I haven't met some of you yet, but I would like to. Uh, personally, thank you for the investment that you've made to bring me here. Obviously I wouldn't be here without your support. So th thank you all for that. And uh, I know that we're, we're known for community events and beer sales. So I would like to change that and make it more, uh, obviously working more with the community uh, services and, and programs that uh, help uplift uh, downtown Vacaville more than just community events and, and beer sales. So that's why I'm here as well. So let's get started. A little introduction about me, obviously. So I have uh, about seven years experience in a small small business, a small farm business in San Diego. Uh, worked at a lot of farmer's markets in San Diego. I'm not gonna do that here, but uh, we are still gonna continue our small business more online and classes, teaching it, but do have a lot of experience with small business, obviously. I have experience uh, with a business association and working with business associations. So I worked with uh, North Park Main Street in San Diego uh, and it was Main Street, but it wasn't really a Main Street program, um, but it was Main Street. So I just wanted to point that out, but uh, uh, it was interesting working with them. It was right when COVID hit. So I helped a lot with setting up uh, parklets, which was an interesting thing to try to get people, businesses to invest in something when you're obviously investing in anything. And a lot of uh, research, master's level research about business associations across California. If it's bids, P-bids, CBDs, uh, community benefit districts, uh, et cetera. Just business associations in general that don't even have uh, city funding. So a lot of interesting work that I've researched to see uh, how you can be successful uh, as, a, as an organization, what really makes it, makes it work. And the goal of it was just basically finding key tools and elements to, to be a successful organization. Um, and I found that uh, it's more than just businesses, obviously a, a bid, it's a business-based. So working with businesses and property owners and the city, uh, I think all three is, is essential to make a uh, organization work that you really want to uplift the community, downtown, Main Street kind of a situation. I also have experience with neighborhood associations and this one, it's a nonprofit, uh, City Heights Town Council. I was the chair for five, six years, uh, working with one of the most diverse communities in the, the country, over uh, 28 languages spoken, uh, very, very unique community. And it was uh, challenging, fun, rewarding, and uh, really interesting trying to get more community involved when uh, oftentimes they're disengaged and uh, don't trust uh, government in particular uh, to get involved. So interesting experience working there for five, six years. Other experiences just round out uh, who I am as a person, worked in social services, real estate, customer service sales. Oftentimes people say, oh, you're, you're new to Vacaville, come from far away, San Diego. Yeah, I, I've been in San Diego the last 20 years, but uh, it's kind of a homecoming for me. I'm from the Bay Area, I grew up in San Francisco, Marin, Oakland, uh, so I went to high school in Oakland. Uh, so Bay Area is, is uh, it's kind of a homecoming for me to be, be around here, have family in Danville, niece, nephews. So I feel like it's a homecoming, not not coming from far away and, and 
not being from around here. Uh, granted, I'm not Vacaville, but uh, uh, we made it home. My wife and I, we moved here, so we're committed to Vacaville now. This is our office, Parker Street, downtown, cleaning up, uh, trying to make it more presentable, welcoming the people to come in. This is uh, obviously the bid map. I'm sure you've, you've seen this over the years many times. That's the, the zone A, zone B, if you're curious what that differences are. And this is the downtown specific plan uh, map for, for obviously downtown. So similar, close, but, but not quite the same. So often confused of uh, which maps what, and that kind of shows that they're, they're very, very close, but don't, they're not, not the same. So here's an old slide that kind of interesting of uh, what we did, obviously working with economic development, economic development department, community events, obviously the beer sales I was talking about, marketing and promotion. Uh, oftentimes it was marketing and promotion of the event and tourism and promotion, obviously the big four with uh, Visit Vacaville, and what we didn't do. We wanna change this. Obviously this is an old slide. So this is a, a new crew, new board, new leadership. So what we were known for, sure, but what we can do is really important. Is obviously doing more maintenance, security uh, even, uh, if it's appropriate and working with uh, programs for homeless issues, capital improvements, working with different departments with the city, commu community development in particular, and parking and transportation. Obviously parking is a contentious issue, so I have a lot of uh, ideas of creatively working with uh, making just more parking available of uh, what, what we have. This is a lot here, but uh, I'll try to dive through it. So. Our committees, obviously Matt talked about a little bit that uh, we're, we're committed with our committees. Uh, they're, they're filling up quickly, uh, and so I'm calling this team can do. This is a new one, property owner engagement and participation. This was a request for us to add as one of our committees, and I completely support it. Uh, again, one of the, the three keys is property owners and working with the city. So started it, and we already have leadership involved with it, which is good. Then Clean and Safe is another one. It's not, it's new, but it replaced one. So it was the design committee. We just changed it to Clean and Safe to be more specific about what's design. It's kind of unclear. Clean and Safe, it, it seems more, make, make more sense, and uh, we'll go over it more and more as we move along in the process over this year. So those are the committees. As we've alluded to, the Main Street American four-point four process, uh, four-point approach. Uh, this just shows that we're, we're already working on it. We're doing it. We already have an organization. That's one of the, the four. Economic Vitality, another one of the four. Clean and Safe. It was design, which is part of the four. Now it's clean and safe. Motion. So we're already working on it. Uh, we obviously just need to make more of an impact with it. And we did go to the California Main Street Conference in Oceanside. Uh, that's step one. Step two is actually signing up for the, the program to become accredited again as a Main Street organization. And that'll help with these guidelines as well become more of a community transformation for downtown. So here's some ideas basically of what, uh, what we're thinking of working on with the, the P-for-Service. And that is small. 
Okay, so uh, we talked with Public Works about the, the power washing of the sidewalks. Uh, my understanding is that the city does it twice a year, so I offered to do it at least once more. Uh, source an artist and uh, find a wall to do at least one one mural this year to add some art and hopefully a graffiti abatement at the same time. Plant new, new flowers in uh, flower pots that are already there or add some if, if needs be, uh, depending on what business is where they want them. Then a, a fun one, you see the, the red stamped brick sidewalks that uh, they look faded and uh, old. It's an old town, so it kind of fits with that, but I would like to, to see if we can paint it, give it a fresh coat of paint, make it look nice and clean again. Simple, easy way to update our, our downtown district. And then message boards. One of the key things uh, just for directory for, for Anita is having a directory and uh, taking more control over that at Elatis Bridge, Town Square, and uh, digitally at, as well at our office to provide information about, yes, events, sure, but more than that, obviously community events, business promotions, business events, uh, other events that we're not even tied to as long as it's downtown beneficial. And kind of going over what uh, Tim has already said and Matt as well, it's an incremental approach. Uh, again, I'm new here, but uh, I do have a lot of ideas and I have uh, got my boots on the ground. I have been working hard the last two months, uh, maybe a little too hard, but uh, I'm trying to make it work and I really want to uh, have a successful first year and, and grow from there. So that's the, the idea. So yeah, again, just ready to work. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you. At this time, any any comments or questions from the council directed to the presentation? Seeing none, I'm going to open it up to a public comment. Thank you. I own uh, Laney's Furniture over here on East Monta Vista. We are on the outskirts of what we call the DVBID. Um, we would like to benefit more from the whole downtown vibe that we got going on here in Vacaville. I apologize. I'm a busy girl, sorry. Um, anyway, but what, what Taylor's doing and what Matt's doing and what our board is doing is we're trying to revive our downtown. I feel like in the last few years, maybe more than that, um, we've lost the focus that the downtown is our heart of our city. Um, we spread out, you know, we've got the nut tree, we've got other things going on, but m your main business owners who live here, who work here, who have kids here, who pay taxes here, who vote here, they all own businesses here in the downtown. So this, this group here, we've got a few of us here tonight. We're all wearing these blue caps. We want you to know that we're here. We're here to stay. We want to invest in this town, but we just need a little help. So that's what I'm here to tell you. <laughs> but thank you for listening. I appreciate it. Thank you. What else? <laughs> Seeing none, I'm going to close public comment, bring it back to the council. I see Council Member 
Dr. Roberts. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, appreciate the presentation. Welcome, Taylor, and all the new board members that are going on with the bid right now. I did have a question for Taylor. I know you and have probably have a lot of grand plans coming in for the bid, and I know the fee for service that you have on here is, or that's in the staff report, seventy five thousand. But I did see another request in there, another amount for one hundred fifty thousand. Do you feel that seventy five thousand is enough at this point to get you going on what you need to start doing? Yes and no. Um, obviously, being new here, got to start somewhere. Uh, it is an increase from from last year and from years past, uh, but it's new board, new team, new vision. We're really obviously trying to change what we're what we're known for, what we have been doing. Again, the telling, uh, saying the uh, beer sales again, but uh, that's obviously one of the visual things that we are known for. Uh, so, in, in order to do that and provide a lot of the programs and services that the city has asked us to do, that's that's part of it. Uh, is asking for for more future service to to do that. And those programs are business engagement, which is bid fees, so we can use that. Property uh, engagement, which is not bid fees, which would be fee for service. Uh, and then the clean and save program, which is a lot of beautification, which I went over some of that. So it'd be a lot of that, but more of it. And then some other programs uh, and getting that started, really. And then working with city staff to make it more of a robust plan of what we can do towards the end of this year and next year and incre incrementally grow from there. Uh, so it's a, a building block uh, in order to really build a good foundation. Yeah, we, we need some help. Um, we can can do do well uh, with what what's being uh, presented, uh, but obviously uh, more would be more beneficial and easier for us to build a stronger building block. One example for that is uh, the farmers market. The farmers market has struggled over the last few years uh, for various reasons, and having some experience with farmers markets, I really want to make it a, a good farmers market. Uh, change it to all year and have an incubator uh, entrepreneurship program with it to try to bring in businesses that are just starting or help businesses that are already there grow out of there into a brick and mortar place, ideally downtown, but somewhere else in Vacaville, sure, as well. So different programs like that, you need to really build it with some, some funding to get it started. So in January, we were talking about a larger, larger amount, sure, and uh, it was discussed. And uh, yeah, we were surprised with a, a lower ask this time. I completely get it with a fiscal year and the challenges that we have for six months or less than six months until the fiscal year uh, starts again. Um, so the 75 and the, and the 150, it was kind of more of a 75 now. And then if, if it's fiscal year, asking for 150 for the fiscal year so that we're not again here in January saying, all right, where, where's the rest of the money for the year for us? Because we're not on a fiscal year. Uh, so that's the ask as well just obviously being smart about it so that's kind of where we're at of uh, what what we want we want to ask appropriately but we also want to ask to make a difference uh, and really show that it is a new new time for downtown vacuville and that we want to really make a difference and, and show not just you guys but the, the businesses the property owners and the community that we're it's a change something's happening here that's different than it was before yeah thank you i appreciate it um <clears throat> Well, I can't speak for the other council members. I know in the past, a lot of us have fully supported the businesses downtown. And personally, I think it should be a little bit higher. I know there is a fiscal year because the budget's already set, so we can't go all the way up to that 150 mid-cycle. Um, but the thing I'm concerned about is like, because of the fiscal year, even if you do come back, 
will that be enough time to support the stuff going on for like 4th of July and Creek Block? Because I know a lot of the stuff has to be planned well in advance and probably paid for before then. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I do feel like it should be a little bit more. Uh, and then also with that, uh, going back to the businesses, is your guys' business um, and properties as well. And I do think there needs to be some adjustment there as well. I know business owners don't like increasing fees or anything like that, but I mean, the fees haven't been increased in what, 24 years now? And could you sell products or your services that you have now with 1999 prices? You probably won't be able to survive provide the same level of service. Um, so yeah, we as we do increase these, I do hope that the business owners would be on board of helping themselves out as well with increasing, not crazy amount, but enough just to make sure you guys get the services that you need. Because I mean, it does drive business. To, it's like an investment to your business. I know previous bids haven't done uh, a lot of the service aspect of it, where it's been primarily events, but hopefully with the new guidance and the new team that you'll be able to beautify downtown and drive more business there as well. So my thoughts on that. Thank you. Uh, Council member Stockton. Yes, thank you. Thank you for the presentation. Thank you for your enthusiasm for everyone that showed up today wearing the blue hats and and thank you for what you're doing for our town it's it doesn't go unnoticed that you are fighting for the soul of our community especially the business community downtown and we all want to have a beautiful downtown but it just seems frustrating um i have hope now that you know that, that you've got everybody together and you have a vision that looks absolutely fantastic so um, i'm very excited to, to hear this but one of the things that is troubling for me is you know, we hear from you, you know, a couple times a year, we go downtown and we might see some of you, but I think it's really important if we wanna see a change downtown that we improve our communication. Uh, we have three by threes with the school district. We have them with other uh, on homelessness uh, where we meet um, every couple weeks or monthly, depending upon what it is. I would really be interested in maybe working with staff and setting up an opportunity for two or three council members to meet with you and, and a, you know, a couple of the folks in your board, or it can rotate for you, something so that we can maintain that communication so that our policies can help you with your vision. Because it's, we're, we're, it's missing. Um, and we want, all want it to be there, but how we get there, I think is really gonna take a collaborative effort um, I, I don't disagree with council member Roberts that, um, you know, we should look at, um, the funding that you are going to need to really make the impact that I think we all want to see downtown. Um, but are your meet like, are your meetings open for us to attend? When are they? Um, can you, can you give me some of that information and would you be interested in potentially a, um, like a two by two or a three by three with council members or planning commissioners or somebody to help us actually get some? Yes, absolutely. I absolutely want to meet with, with you, with, with, with all of you, and, and open communication for sure. Uh, yes, my, my big thing is transparency. Uh, our meetings are open. Uh, yes, and we have uh, an executive board meeting and uh, advisory board with uh, city staff present and uh, our, our general board meetings. And I'll definitely send invites out to make sure that uh, you're informed of it uh, through city staff. Uh, that way you are always informed of what, what meetings we have. That way you can attend and 
um, give, give feedback from, from your side as well. I don't want to just see you once a year <laughs> uh, presenting about what we did or didn't do. I, I want to obviously work with you and have your, your input as well. I, I, ever since I started, uh, granted, almost two months now, it's not too long, but I said it's, it's not about me, it's, uh, it's about, about we. It's a us plan of making this work, and you're obviously a key, key cog in the system making it work, so, so yes. And I'll, and I'll just comment on that. Um, I tried to attempt um, to come to your last meeting, but somehow it changed on the calendar. And it is, it's an open meeting. It's, it's not a formalized one, so I think we just have to be cautious that we don't, um, we don't jeopardize us as a body to attend, but certainly it's something that I know that you working with staff in the community, a lot of people who feel strongly about downtown. So uh, with that, I wanna, uh, Council Member Silva, yeah, thank you. Um, thanks for the presentation. Welcome to Vacaville again. Um, and uh, thanks for everybody, you know, for showing up. Um, I think, uh, you know, so it took about, I can't remember, maybe about a year uh, to fill this role. Um, kind of what's echoed by my fellow council members uh, along the same lines. Um, interesting suggestion about a, a three by three. I, I think uh, I did have a conversation with the city manager on uh, finding ways that we can better communicate, uh, put out information of what we've what we've actually already invested in, um, as far as uh, what city councils approve, what the city's invested in, um, things that are in the works, things that uh, you know that are pending, things that we're working towards. Um, I think there's there's always been a lot of challenges with a lot of different dynamics downtown, and I think the sooner that we can get on the same page uh, and have a, a better understanding of where we're at. Um, not losing things and you know uh, making sure everybody's on the, uh, understanding where uh, folks are coming from is uh, you know with respect to Brown Act and whatnot. Um, I think that uh, I think that would be key. Uh, I think just in general, a lot of folks in Vacaville are uh, eager to see progress, um, eager to see tangible outcomes, not just uh, perhaps with our downtown, but in uh, multiple different areas throughout our city. And uh, I think that's something that I, I need everybody honestly to be clear about. That's what's expected of us as council members. Um, and so, um, you know, uh, I like the suggestion. Um, you know, I've already committed to uh, making sure I can attend the ones that I can attend. Uh, and the, the first year around, I was able to do that. Schedule sometimes doesn't work out for me uh, through my work schedule. But um, so like for, for me, I, I think we, we support the request to keep you all going. Um, and then we, uh, it didn't sound, I, didn't, I didn't hear like any tangible requests still. Um, so, uh, you know, that, you know, as those come up, you know, I personally, I, I want to hear them. Um, I think it should be something that council ultimately decides. Um, you know, obviously I was explaining uh, with them uh, uh, from a separate meeting that, uh, you know, we have a lot of things moving on, moving around in the city. So it's, it's not just, we can't always, we don't have the, the luxury of just focusing on one area of the town and how we invest, but um, ultimately how we uh, how we move forward. Uh, I'm hoping it, we get some stuff done sooner than later. Um, and I know we. I just want to clarify: we have invested in downtown, like we have lighting. Um, you know, we have the the controversial parking meters. Um, uh, there's a lot of <clears throat> different you know opinions, but there's you know I'm not going to go into that today. But, um, you know, so there's different ways that we're trying to increase, and I absolutely want to make sure that you're set up to succeed uh, and bring in the perspective that you have. Uh, I want to comment, um, you were, you know, you are saying, I'm not from back, you know, you kind of like, kind of repeated that you're not from back, it's okay, uh, welcome. 
<laughs> right? Um, and I think it's valuable for all of us to be able to get outside our, our city and see what works in other places, what doesn't work, and that's some invaluable experience and perspective that we can bring back. Some, you know, maybe those things uh, will work here, maybe they wouldn't, but um, you know, I'm all about creativity and leading to innovation. So that's my comments. Thank you. Mr. City Manager, do you have a comment? Yeah, I just want to remind the, the council, and I appreciate the comments, um, that part of the, the package before you tonight that hasn't uh, really had an opportunity to get vetted much tonight is the, the fact that as part of the resolution, not only are you moving forward with the assessments, the levy and assessments, but you're also approving a management agreement which details the, the key deal points, if you will, the relationship between the city and the downtown bid. But it also includes the district plan, which is you know kind of summarized before you tonight in terms of some of the highlights. But that's where, um, unfortunately, last year because of you know the transition that it experienced, we didn't and and the pandemic, your last few you know district plans have not been as robust as you know we all would have hoped on both sides. This one is just getting started, and so when you talk about you know we'd like to see this, we'd like to see that. You know, how do we work with you and, and what is the service deliveries? What's the scope of services? That's what the plan's for. And, and so that's what we're suggesting in our recommendation tonight is, is that, you know, Taylor, I've met with him a couple of times. He's out there running and full speed ahead. But we also see that there's an opportunity here to sit down with, you know, the board because I've yet to have a chance to meet with uh, Matt and, and the rest of the team um, and, and get on the same page as to what those service deliveries are. And so that's where you can actually put those items in there in the district plan. And so what you know, Tim has pointed out to you is, is our suggestion tonight is, is that you know, increase the budget right now so that we can move forward with getting them going. Uh, we understand the importance. We're thrilled that he's here with his experience and everything. We're thrilled uh, with the new board and all and the direction and the commitment to the cause. But in those next few months, we can work on some of those more specific details so that we can bring that back to council so that what we understand is your vision and what their purpose for is all in the same document and we can all move forward with that going forward and put an additional investment behind that because now it's in there and detailed for everyone to see. So I just wanna you know, remind everybody that the district plan and the management agreement are those other key pieces to what you have in, in front of you as part of going forward. The other piece just as a quick reminder is, is that at the end of the year, so, you know, the, you, it was mentioned about the, 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 the calendar year and the fiscal year budget. Well, so we're here today because um, the ordinance that created the bid originally in 1999 says that those levies must be in effect by March 1. And so that kind of dictates the timing of why we're here today. So that predicates we have the management agreement, the district plan, et cetera. We also have typically received an annual or a year-end report from the bid and so that typically will come in in October, November to say, okay, here's what we set out to accomplish in February. Here's our scorecard. How'd we do? And so then that plays right into the following year coming in in February and saying, all right, this is how we did. This is what we need more to go to that next level. Council, we need your help. This is the things that we're doing. And so the process, you know, rinse, repeat, cycle, et cetera. So there's lots more to be done here, um, and staff is very excited working with, with the group out there, um, but we just recognize that there's still some more dialogue that we believe needs to happen so that we can give council that you know, uh, firm game plan of what's going forward moving ahead. Thank you. 
Thank you. Vice Mayor Weil. Thank you very much for the information tonight. And I haven't had a chance to sit down and meet with you, so hopefully we'll be able to do that in the next couple of weeks. I do know that a lot of people in town are very interested in supporting small business. They're very happy to go to a store that's not a chain store because I hear a lot of, we just have all these chain stores, so we want something else. And I see that quite a few people here are um, in businesses that have been in, in, in business for a long time, like the music store and some other stores. So my question is, um, what sort of support do you have for those stores that just are trying to get started and new businesses? Do you have like a mentorship program so that the people that are successful can help the new businesses? And that's my first question. Well, it's, it's just me. So oh. uh, I can mentor as best as I can with my small business experience. But besides that, uh, it would be partnering with other organizations like Small Business Development Center, uh, County, and any other workforce development uh, type organizations that we, we can partner with to, to make it work. So and that's not really part of the bid issue? Is bid does a lot of uh, uh, promoting and uh, working with the small business uh, promotion, not necessarily building businesses. Okay. Uh, obviously, I want to change that yeah. with, with some help. And Vice Mayor Wiley, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, we actually work with the SBDC, as Taylor just mentioned, on kind of mentorship. And there's a organization or actually a subset of the SBDC that focuses on restaurant uh -huh. uh, uh, mentorships. And so that is really uh, very much a small business development center uh, kind of uh, program. But obviously, the bid could be a part of that as well. So like in my district, there's like some home bakeries and things that have businesses out of their house. If they were interested in maybe coming downtown to a space, then they should work with the Small Business Association? That would be the, the place to start, yes. Okay, okay. And a second question I have is, um, what percent of the businesses downtown participate or belong, or do they all, by default, have to belong? If, if they're a part of the, uh, the business district, uh, the bid, then, they're uh, in th it? then they are in it, yes. Okay. And the different levels, uh, the zones, is what level you're, you're at. And that's so no one can opt out? Correct, no one can opt out. Okay, all right, thanks. Thank you, Councilmember Chap. Thank you. Um, it was nice meeting you outside <laughs> prior to the meeting. No, um, I haven't uh, had an opportunity to meet you one-on-one. -on -one. However, I want to thank you very much for the presentation. Uh, in the two months you've been here, it seems as if you've been quite busy. Um, you have a lot of the um, business owners in attendance this evening, and I haven't met probably any of you, but I'm coming, I'm coming. Right now I'm spending a lot of time meeting uh, internally, meeting the directors of the various departments, and so they can vouch for, they can't, but the manager can't vouch that I have been uh, quite busy. Um, the one thing I wanted to inquire, uh, we we're speaking of downtown. How, what is the perimeter of your downtown that? Put the map back up there and maybe describe it better so people understand there's two different zones and um, kind of call out the, the perimeter. We think of downtown mostly when those who come is just Main Street, but it's so much larger than that. Thank you. Asking to see if 
I can get access to GIS so I can actually update the map myself or work with city staff to update it, uh, to make it clearer uh, with the street names, et cetera. Uh, it's an old map that's been zoomed out, zoomed back down out too many times, so it's, but, so it's hard to read. But anyway, on the left, uh, it's right there with uh, Cernan Street, so it doesn't quite go to, doesn't okay. quite go all the way uh, to, to Buck um, from Main Street, so it, it stops at Cernan Street. Uh, and then on the, on the north there, it's um, Monta Vista for, for most of it, but then as uh, Laney's Furnishers here uh, showing her support, uh, that's a little blip is uh, Laney's Furniture and uh, more, more than a blip, really nice blip. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, that's a little hump, whatever you want to call it on the top there um, and um, a future office space and I guess the old CVS uh, that was there. Uh, and then to the right there goes all the way to, to Depot Street. And that's where the CVS is now on the other side. So not quite there. And then on the north side there, there's uh, Lucky. So that's not part of it, but you can kind of get the idea of where, where it is and isn't. Uh, and then south is the, the freeway. So uh, the movie theater, Brendan Theater, is part of it. Uh, and then it kind of zigs back, back up by Merchant and stuff. So uh, City Hall is not part of it. Um, across the street, they're not part of it. Uh, Pietro's first thing after going over there was like, how can we join? Uh, so there, there is discussion on, on some businesses of, of how they could be a part of it. And there's ways of doing it as well. But that's the map uh, right there. You can obviously see Merchant Street and... So you come down um, Merchant. And so this portion where the city hall, let's say from... Um, What's the street right before um, City Hall? In Walnut. Who? Walnut. Lowers Lane on this side. Oh, well, okay. Um, the family-owned restaurant across the street. Come on, yes, Pietro's. Yes. Pietro's, yeah, they're yes. just there. Are they in the... In they're the, not. That's what Pietro's okay, I was talking so about. So Pietro's number two is not. Pietro's number one is um, differentiation. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, thank you for that. Um, I think um, it's it's helpful to know uh, what business are included in the improvement district. Um, have Have you had many calls from others wanting to get involved, be included in the district? Like and it. then, how do you say no to them? Uh, great question, Councilwoman Chapman. Um, the city has actually talked to the bid for several years about uh, expanding the, the bid boundary and making it larger than what you currently see on the map. Um, obviously, when I first got here, uh, COVID happened and everything else went on the back burner. And obviously, in the past year, we've had a lot of transition, but that is something that we would like to probably re revisit with the bid is expanding bid boundaries, looking at the uh, assessment fees, which have been the same for the entire 23-year existence of the bid. Uh, in, in terms of just generating additional revenue and getting more businesses involved as part of a, a business improvement district and explore the opportunity of perhaps looking at a property business improvement district, a PBID, which is really focused on property and business owners as opposed to just business owners. And I noticed uh, it's, it's primarily about downtown wanting to keep that, um, you know, beautify it and keep it live, you know, vivid. Um, Yet, and I have to put this yet out there, we have other small business owners 
that could benefit from support from the city. So how would we, and that's something we can talk about later, uh, how uh, is it about uh, creating additional uh, improvement districts? Or are we only focusing on downtown improvement districts? So, so city Manager, maybe you can answer some of these questions. Yes. So uh, I'll take a shot at it. So with regards to small business assistance, um, outside the boundaries of the bid. So right now we're focusing on the boundaries downtown because the, the main element of t this particular action tonight is levy, you know, approving the levy assessments within the boundaries of the bid that was established back in 1999. So in terms of the, the, the businesses within that district, that's established by that district that was created back then, okay? If there's a, a desire to do that elsewhere, we could explore that, but generally, in terms of assistance, you know, we, we um, the council uh, puts uh, ARPA funds to use for all small businesses, not just downtown, but citywide, okay? Um, and then additionally, the resources that, you know, you heard Tim mention that are available to those small businesses downtown, they're also available to citywide businesses. The chamber is actively working, in, you know, with those businesses as well. So it's not that they're, they're you know, separate and lost, it's just in a different location. But I will say that the, you know, one of our speakers earlier today said that don't forget that downtown is the heart of, of your city. Well, we recognize that. And that's why the council uh, approved and authorized us moving forward with the downtown specific plan and investing not only um, in, in that manner financially in, in building a long range plan for downtown, but you know, we have invested in uh, new infrastructure uh, we're partnering with a private developer for our property down there, what used to be the East Project, now 700 Main. Um, so you'll see new investment down there because we do recognize the importance of maintaining and preserving, expanding and growing downtown because it really is the jewel of, of our community. And that's where why you see, still see all the events down there as well. Um, could there be other opportunities for some of those events? Possibly but it's that old traditional charm um, that keeps them down there. And that's why we're continuing to put proposals in front of the council to continue to support investing in our downtown. I wasn't gonna talk, I'm old school rock, but I did get sent to Oceanside and I learned something. At the Main Street America, uh, or Main Street California Conference, you asked, both asked about small businesses and I'm a small business that started you know, three years ago this month. There is huge opportunity when you grow your downtown to support small businesses. People who are doing businesses out of their home, for instance, they're called incubators is what I've learned. You, you can bring them in to be at a farmer's market or maybe in an empty space downtown that nobody's using and they grow their business and then the next thing you know, they own their own, you know, they're, they're renting their own space and they're having a business. So I, that's one point that I've, I've learned on this trip and I don't wanna discount the fact that growing our downtown can really support small businesses, businesses out of your home, people that are doing things on a, in a small way can actually grow when, when we do more downtown. Yeah. Well, it's okay. It's okay. I mean, we understand no. this, and we're getting off track here. So, it's better for all in one space. That's that's right. And Sorry, so, this I is for a larger discussion. But yeah. appreciate the enthusiasm. <laughs> Trust me. I, I just have one comment about about this. 
Yes. I'm not here to ask to widen the, the bid. Uh, I got to work on some incremental stuff first, right. uh, improve, start the building blocks, get it going first, show the business community, show the property owner community, show the city, show the community as a whole that we're doing stuff. And then we can ask if they want to be a part of it. But yes, so your, to your question, I have Pietro's was one, uh, the, the museum on Buck, that was another one. Both of them want to join the bid. So there are some, uh, we just got to do some stuff first. And then PBID, no, uh, I'm a proponent for PBIDs, but you got it, same thing. You got to get there and you have to have property owners wanting to do that. And so you have to get some small wins first and then some bigger wins and then have a discussion, ask them what they want to do. And if they, then maybe they want to talk about it, then we can converse about it and see if it's appropriate for property owner based bid. Thank you. Thank you. Councilmember Ritchie. Thanks so much. Um, I had to mention you had hopefully my voice can make it through everything. Um, just seeing the excitement in the crowd and uh, fellow small business owners and really the council, everyone from the council, the mayor, we, we've all spent a lot of time passionately in the city. Our mayor spent a lot of time serving the city and has a very good view of the city. Um, we're all, we're, we're all, we all care. And I think just the fact that the emotions, the energy you see in the crowd, if you guys didn't believe in Mr. McDonald, you guys wouldn't have came down. And I think it all works together. And I think I love the question from from Councilman Chapman about where where does it start, where does it end? Because that's a big part of it. We got to really focus. We have one by the apple here. Um, when we look at the downtown, but the bid, making sure the bid is absolutely successful. Yeah, it's outdated. I mean, it, it needs to get updated. We need to put our money where our mouth is and invest in the community. That's going to serve us serve the community and help us all grow together. But if we don't have a absolutely dynamite downtown, we're not gonna have successful downtown specific plans. If the downtown plan doesn't work, we're not gonna attract the multi-billion dollar companies to come to biotech. If that, if we don't start here, the mush, the, it, it grows. If we ruin it and screw it up, they're not gonna come. They're not gonna bring a billion dollar company to a place where they don't wanna live. They don't find fun or enjoyment. So we need to make sure we get it right here. That the downtown grows. Like we're going to book in the city of downtown. The 700 project, it's awesome. It, when it comes to fruition, you're going to see the beautiful school that was rebuilt next to all the amazing homes that those companies are going to bring. It's going to bookend down the old Longstrug Laney. It's going to come alive, and we need to make sure we, we have the fortitude to see the vision and invest now because it's going to happen. And if the big, big businesses have see that we have confidence in ourselves. They'll have confidence to come here. It, it all works together. But if we don't have the confidence to step up and paint sidewalks, why would we bring a billion dollar business to that camp? So I think it all works together. We got to start now. So I'm excited for the next step. Thank you, Councilmember Roberts. Yeah, um, there's no other comments. Oh, I was going to. I haven't made any comments. Do you have anything else you want? I was going to make a motion if there's no further comments. Well, I'll, I'll come to you for the motion. How about that? That'll, that'll work. Uh, uh, thank you for your presentation tonight and all the questions and the obviously the enthusiasm within the audience. Um, look, we love Vacaville. You came here and you will quickly see as you're getting to know everyone. You have a charm here. There's something really special. Um, the program that some of you spoke that you're learning, 
the excitement to be behind something and to understand how to have an incubator location and what a place to do it. And as, um, as you came on board, I had the chance to meet you. Uh, I don't remember if it was before or after Merriment on Main. Um, it was after. But for those who have come here and they, they see what Vacaville brings, and then they attend some of what our downtown can bring, they, they love coming here. It has all the elements to be what you would want in that centerpiece of a community we call Vacaville. At the same time, one of the things that I encourage you to do is, is to really get to know the community, get to know the downtown, the businesses, and really understand the issues. On top of that, you've already begun to recruit to make sure that the team is aligned. And that's where we really need to be as a, as a city. And uh, the hope is, and hope is not the strategy, but the hope is, is that, that this is a moment where with your stepping into a leadership role and the businesses and the energy of the business owners and also the future of potential property owners, the first step is let's have these wins. We know that we have a budget process cycle. Uh, the, the goal really tonight is, is we have to step into this with the, the, the levy process so those uh, revenues can be generated to support it. At the same time, looking at this, it does allow for the increase right now. It allows us also to evaluate what this looks like in the months ahead. We, I think we, um, and I'm not speaking for everyone, but I would assume that if, if everyone were to comment on this, is we all wanna see downtown successful, which means we all wanna see you successful, and you want that, and we want it. So we all want the same thing. I often have said, and many of us are aware of this, we don't wanna have to leave Vacaville to have the experience that we go elsewhere, and I won't name the towns. So those of us who do patronize downtown and the businesses are in this together, and we want this to be successful, and we're excited that you're part of it, and so I just want to say thank you. And with that, we are going to have to entertain a motion, but it's a complicated motion. So Jason, are you prepared to provide that, or can we get some assistance from staff? You're on the spot. And I see our city attorney. I just wanted to point out that all the actions that are recommended by uh, staff are included in the resolution. So if you just wanted to adopt the resolution, it would adopt all those recommendations that are listed uh, two through six in your staff report. Yeah, I mean, it's you can just you, you can adopt them by number. You don't have to name them all off. Yeah, it's fairly <laughs> just straightforward. We've done this before. Uh, I make a motion to adopt the resolution as presented by the staff. I do see that there is um, Councilmember Stockton. Hold on one second, I didn't see your light. You wanna comment? Uh, I just wanted to <clears throat> see if I could offer a friendly amendment before we get a second to this, to add a three by three with the council with the bid to make sure that we have the, communi that we have the communication that to know whether or not they're gonna need more assistance or if we need to help. So I would like to add that to the existing offer. So uh, from our city attorney, would you I, like to comment on that? I, I would just caution that we may want to bring that back to um, consider the Brown Act implications of forming that committee in this matter, in this manner. 
So is this something that we can bring back in a discussion from staff and then bring that as an idea? I understand where you're coming from. One bring that back, can make bring, sure. Bring back when? At the end of fiscal, in a month, in a week? I'm, I'm just curious. Well, we can bring it to your uh, priority, priority setting session. So how about we do that? Bring it up as a topic of discussion during our priorities. When is that expected to happen? What on your calendar for March 17th. Oh, perfect. Just wanted to make sure. That's it. Is that, does and, that and by the way, Laney's is the tip of the spear for the downtown. <laughs> okay. Just saying. All right. So we have a motion. Do we have a second? Yes. All right. Council Member Silva is the second. All in favor say aye. 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 The ayes have it. Any opposed? None. It passes. Thank you very much. Thanks for the presentation. And with that, um, I see that the public hearing 9B has been continued to a date uh, to be determined. So we will move on to business from the floor. Item number 9A, Mr. City Manager. Thank you, Mr. Mayor, members of the City Council. This next uh, business item for you tonight is an update on the pension and other post-employment benefits. Uh, our Director of Finance, Kim Matsumia, and our HR Director, Jessica Bose, and uh, uh, guest consultant are here to make a presentation for the update for you tonight. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. City Manager. Good evening, Mr. Mayor, Vice Mayor, members of the council. As the city manager mentioned tonight, um, along with our OPEB actuary, Eric Goodhart, and our HR director, Jessica Bose, we're here to provide an update on our unfunded liabilities for pension and OPEB. So to start, just to go over some terms that uh, you would see in the valuation reports that were attached to the staff report and some of the terms that we're gonna be referring to this evening, very first one is uh, the valuation date, and what that refers to is the as of date the actual evaluation is completed. The next three terms um, we use when we're talking about how to measure our funding progress, so the actual liability, the present value of promised benefits earned as, as of the valuation date. The assets are the value of assets set aside to fund the obligations, and then the unfunded actual liability is the difference between the actual liability and the assets as of the valuation date. And the next two terms um, are used when we discuss how much we need to fund each year. So that's the normal cost, and then more importantly, the ADC, which is the, the sum of the normal cost, the amount necessary to amortize the UAL. The previous slide had a lot of words to it. Um, this is kind of how those terminologies relate visually. And so for the unfunded liability, that is the actual liability minus the funding or the assets that we have set aside to, to pay those obligations. And then the bottom section, and when you take the normal cost and the unfunded, the UAL amortization payment, those two elements equal our ADC, which is you can think of as our annual mortgage that we need to pay. So we'll be going over these liabilities in more detail as we go through the presentation, but the following charts illustrate the city's total unfunded liability as of the last valuation report. That's the pie chart on the left, and the total unfunded liability based on the most recent reports, which is shown on the right. So as of the last valuation, the city's total unfunded liability was 311 million with about 16% of that or 49 million from OPEB and the remaining amount, about 263 million coming from pension. Um, tonight, uh, the most recent valuation reports, which are on that in the pie chart on the right, uh, <clears throat> the total unfunded liability is about $24 million less 
$287 million, and that's primarily due to the drop in our CalPERS pension liability due to investment returns. <clears throat> so to start, uh, we'll be talking about the pension side of the unfunded liabilities. And when we refer to pension, there's two main plans that we're referring to. The first is our CalPERS plan, which is the city's main pension plan. And then there's also our PARS um, supplemental pension plan, which has been closed or was closed for new hires in 2013. So the following slide is a high-level summary of the pension valuation results, comparing the results from the prior valuation, which is the, the chart on the left in blue, to the current valuation on the right. Uh, the primary purpose of these third-party actuarial valuation reports is to determine the ADC. Row on the bottom, and then also our, our, to, to measure our funding progress, which is reflected by the funding ratio row right here. And one of the main things I wanted to highlight on these tables is the valuation date. And so you'll notice that uh, for both PERS and PARS, the dates are different. And so if we're looking at the, the current results that we're presenting this evening, the PERS results are as of June 30th, 2021, whereas PARS is as of this last fiscal year, so June 30th, 2022. And that's important because as we go through this presentation, there's definitely a difference in how investments were formed in 2021 when they were really good, and 2022 when they were not so good. So for, um, and so for uh, PERS, those actual valuations are performed um, annually in, by in-house actuaries at CalPERS. Like I mentioned, they are a full year behind. And so our most current valuation is as of 2021. The way that works is that we would get that valuation um, in July of 2022, basically a year later. And then uh, those rates or kind of how much we need to pay, the impact of that, would be um, this fiscal year. So there's almost like a two-year lag between when the actual year closes and then when we actually have to, we'll see it reflected in how much we have to pay to CalPERS. And with uh, PARS and also with OPEB, which our actual will be covering later, those valuations are performed by the actual firm Milliman. Um, so these reports, they were being completed biannually, but then we moved <laughs> to an annual valuation. That's primarily so that we could get the information a lot more frequently. Um, and so we moved to that annual valuation system. Uh, the data is also a lot fresher with PARS and OPEB. It's as of our last fiscal year, so 2022, whereas with PERS, you are looking at data that is, you know, more than a year plus old. So going through the results uh, for PERS, the unfunded liability, the UAL, dropped from 223.7 million to 176 million uh, during the year, and uh, the funded status improved from 65% to 74%. I'll cover that uh, as to why that took place in the next slide, but that's kind of the, the key pieces from on the PERS side. And then for PARS, the UAL um, did the opposite. So it increased from 38.8 million in uh, 2021 to 42.5 million in, in 2022. The funded ratio also declined, going from 42% to 37% for, for PARS. And then in the last row, um, it shows sort of how much we're going to have to pay in uh, the upcoming fiscal year, so 2024. So for, for PERS, uh, it was at 27.8 in our last valuation. Current valuation has that at 28.7 million. For PARS, it went up about 400,000 for 4.1 million to 4.5. So in each of the actual valuation reports, there is a section that discusses the actual gain or loss between the valuations. So since these valuations are a projection of the future, assumptions are made on how long people will live, when they will retire, salary growth, investment earnings, et cetera. 
And then this section measures the difference between those assumptions and what actually occurred. So an actual loss would result in an increase of the unfunded liability. And then if you have a gain, that would result in a decrease um, to, from what was expected to the unfunded liability. And so as I mentioned, um, kind of two different situations here in, uh, for CalPERS and PARS. So kind of going with CalPERS first on the left, you'll notice that um, kind of working from the top down, we had our investment gains, uh, we had investment gain of 66.7 million. And that primarily has to do with the fact that in 2021, um, CalPERS annually assumes that we're, they're gonna earn 7% on their assets. In 2021, CalPERS earned over 20%. And so the fact that they earned so much more than what the valuation assumes, that results in a gain. And so the gain was 66.7 million in 2021. Um, also as part of the assumptions, I'd mentioned that outside of investments, they also look at how long people are gonna live, sort of their salary increases when they are gonna retire, um, so on and so forth. That's kind of referred to as the non-investment component. And so for non-investments, there was also a gain from the demographic experience, the sort of mortality, um, retirement, things of that nature, and salary growth being more favorable. So they were better than what was assumed in the valuation report, and that's why you also see a gain there. And so in total, in 2021 for CalPERS, we saw an actuarial gain of, uh, on the unfunded liability of 68.5 million. And that is why on the previous table, when you look at the unfunded liability in 2020 compared to 21, it went down significantly. That's primarily the reason why, it's because of the investment. For PARS, as I mentioned earlier, 2022 was a, a different story on the investment side. And so for PARS, um, the investment loss was greater than what was assumed. And so on the PARS valuations, we assume that the assets are gonna uh, make six and a half percent each year. In the case of PARS um, in 2022, the investment returns were a negative 13%. And so because those returns were worse than what was assumed, we had a loss of 5.5 million. Um, as far as the kind of non-investment assumptions, we also had a loss there of about 600,000, primarily due to retirements occurring kind of sooner than assumed. And so in, in total, uh, during 2022 PARS, we had a loss on the unfunded liability of about 6.1 million. And I think for both of these situations, it really highlights the importance of the investments and how that does, because as you can notice in, in 2021, we had a great year, and that's because investments did extremely well. In 2022, um, with PARS, um, you know, we had an a, a actual loss, and that's pretty much driven by investments. And that's kind of why investments are so important that PERS and PARS and that they hit their mark with those investment returns. So I did mention that with CalPERS, it is a year behind, um, kind of two year fiscal years behind the data as of 2021. Um, we do have some updated numbers for 2022. They're not quite official yet, but CalPERS back in July had mentioned that their preliminary estimate for what 2022 returns looked like was a negative 6.1%. And then um, towards the fall, although I don't think this has been publicly announced, I know at a conference they had mentioned that they um, kind of revised that number. It looked like they lost probably closer to 7.5%, so 7.4%. Um, because of the timing, like we're not going to have the official valuation that reflects that until July of 2023. And I mentioned um, that's not going to impact what we pay until fiscal year 24-25. But um, just to be prudent with our budgeting and our forecasting, what we've done, because CalPERS does have a forecasting tool, is to kind of plug that in and see, well, um, we're hearing that they lost 7.4%. What does that look like for funded status? And then how much are we gonna end up having to pay over the our forecast? And so um, later on this evening, we have a budget item. When we do the five-year forecast, um, we kind of not only included the, the valuation results that we're talking about right now, but also 
an assumption of what 2022 looked like as well. So um, kind of using CalPERS's forecasting tool, this is you know, our projection of um, what the funded status would look like. And so back in 2020, we were at a 65% funded status. In 2021, when we had those really great returns, uh, we jumped up to 74%. And then because the 2022 returns, uh, you know, CalPERS assumes that 7%, they returned a negative 7.4% in all likelihood, we pretty much kind of dropped back down to a 66%. And so that is our projection of sort of how that's gonna play out. Um, and then we'll find out again in, in July. And so um, I'll pass it off to our HR director to talk about the next section. Good evening, Mayor and Council. For o the OPEB section, OPEB stands for other post-employment benefits with other meaning other than pension, which Ken just covered. The city's only OPEB is retiree medical. We have three tiers of retiree medical. Tier one and two are both closed plans, and tier three is our newest plan that was effective in 2018 for non-safety and 2020 for safety employees. The city contracts through CalPERS for all health benefits for active and retirees, and the plan, plan design, and premiums are all determined by internal negotiations between CalPERS and the plans directly. The city has no part in those negotiations. That's all governed by state law called PEMCA, Public Employees Health Care, Health, Public Employees Medical and Health Care Act. And we like to bring the health rates for each calendar year to council once they are decided by CalPERS. Uh, again, CalPERS makes that determination. The city's cost is based on the Kaiser plan rate for active employees, which we share a split in cost of 8515. And the 2023 rates uh, have come out, obviously, and are in place right now. They did increase 6.61% over the 2022 rates, and that's about a 3.2% average over the last 10 years. Uh, the rates do cover calendar year, so it does impact half of the budget year. The 2023 rates have been in place um, and will be for the second half of fiscal year 23, and then obviously for the first half of fiscal year 24. The 24 uh, calendar year rates will be out in the spring of 23. So to introduce our actuary from Milliman, Eric Goodhart is our actuary here tonight. He has more than 25 years of actuarial experience. The city has been working with Milliman since 2008 on our valuations, and Eric has been performing those since 2015 for us. He's a speaker at Virginia State, Regional, uh, State and Regional Finance Conferences and he's here tonight to uh, give you a presentation and answer any questions. Jessica, thank you for your introduction. Mr. City Manager, Mr. Mayor, Ms. Vice Mayor, City Council, thank you for having me. This is my fourth time presenting these results on the city's OPEB plan. The last time I did so was in December of 2021 via Zoom. I believe I went on around 1 a.m. local time in Virginia, so I feel like I'm already six hours ahead of the game. So. I feel pretty good right now compared to December of 21. So back in December 21 when I presented, things were, things looked really good. Like the unfunded liability for the plan was the lowest it had been in quite some time. Assets had done very well for the fiscal year ending June 30, 21. But then 2022 happened. And um, as we can see here on slide 12, we had some changes and all these items tend to tell the same story. Um, Surbit assets, Surbit assets, that's the trust that fund that the city uses to fund OPEB. That balance decreased by about $7 million. 
due to poor investment performance, but that's universal. Everywhere, every fund across the country likely, likely experienced losses during fiscal 22. As a result of that performance, the plan's funded ratio decreased from 56 to 44%. As a result of that decrease in funded status, you can see that the UAL increased from 48.5 million for fiscal year ending June 30, 21 to 68 million for fiscal year ending 22. And the city's actuarially determined contribution, which Ken discussed a few slides back, increased by $2 million from 7 million to 9 million, primarily because of the amortization component. Funding, you have to pay off that, that increased unfunded liability over a period of years. And because the unfunded liability increased, that amortization component increased and your actuary determined contribution increased. So the most recent valuation we completed for the city was of June 30, 22. This was one year after June 30, 21. We've moved to an annual valuation cycle, as Ken mentioned earlier. That allows us to see how things are operating more frequently as opposed to every two years. So what has changed since the last valuation? Well, when we looked at the June 30, 22 census data, it allows us to see how our assumptions, our actual assumptions that go into the valuation are working. We get to see what part of the population turned over who died, who retired, who left voluntarily, and compare it to the assumptions. And that resulted in a actuarial loss or unfunded liability increase of about $2 million. And to put that in perspective, the city's liability is about $120 million. So I'm not going to lose too much sleep over a loss of $2 million on $120. That's about 1%, a little over between 1% and 2%. Not too bad, all things considered. The health-related assumptions, meaning the claims that we assume that retirees are going to incur, and the rate that those costs increase over time, those assumptions also changed. Those assumptions resulted in a liability increase of $9 million. Now, with respect to the trend assumption, I'm not talking about what happened between June 30, 21 and June 30, 22. Our healthcare trend assumption addresses what we think healthcare costs are going to do over a long period of time, not just in fiscal 22, but many years, fiscal years into the future. In fact, we have an assumption for every year that the plan will provide a payment. So it's just not what happened in fiscal 22, but it's a long-term assumption. And inflation has hit all sectors of the economy, and healthcare is no exception. So the, health, the new healthcare trend assumption used in the June 30, 22 valuation increased liabilities compared to what we use as a June 30, 21 valuation. We also made a change in the assumption for what proportion of retirees are electing to cover a spouse. For very, maybe some retirees aren't married to begin with, maybe the spouse has coverage through another plan. We have been using 75%, but based on inspection of retiree data for the past five years, it appeared that that assumption was a little aggressive, that it was, more, it was closer to 65%. So we lowered that assumption by 10%. So we were assuming less retirees that retire in the future will be covering a spouse. So that results in a liability decrease or a liability gain of 2.2 million. Taken all together, these three components result in an actuarial loss of about $9 million, meaning that the actuarial liability, the liability came in about $9 million higher than what we expected. That's only half of the equation. The other half of the equation is how the assets performed. And as Ken discussed with relation to the PARS plan, Fiscal 22 was 
we experience a loss on the assets compared to our six and a half percent rate of return assumption. Now that six and a half percent rate of return assumption is based on the CERBITs, the California Employees Retirement Benefit Trust. They have three asset strategies. The city uses strategy one, which is the most aggressive strategy of the three. We look at the asset allocation according to that strategy and, and use our capital market assumptions developed by Milliman's investment professionals to come up with what we think is a reasonable long-term rate of return, not just a rate of return for fiscal 22, but what we expect that allocation to earn in the long-term. And that is six and a half percent. So we expected plan assets to earn about 4 million during fiscal 22. Assets actually earned a negative eight point, actually lost 8.4 million resulting in an actuarial loss or, li or unfunded liability increase of $12.5 million. So the assets were more of a cult, were more of a deciding factor on the actual uh, loss on liability or the UAL than on the liability side. It was mainly due to assets, not because of things related to healthcare costs, uh, demographic experience of the participants. And that happens. I mean, this is, my fourth, this is my fourth presentation, and I believe on the, on the first three presentations I've come here and I've had mainly good news. Assets have always done better than what we've assumed. The demographic experience, the healthcare experience has been pretty much what we thought, not too much going on there. But you know, this year we had a double whammy. The liabilities came in a little bit higher than what we thought, coupled that with assets that came in lower than what we thought. Combination was, you can see that the 8.7 plus 12.5 about $21 million of higher than expected as far as the UAL is concerned. But let's keep in mind the big picture. Where have we been and where are we going? So I like to compare, you know, the first time I presented on this plan was June 30, 2017. I came here and at that time the plan was 22% funded. Assets compared to total assets of 23 million compared to a liability of about 106. A lot has changed in five years. No one's going to argue that. Even with all the volatility recently and the, and the poor asset performance in fiscal 22, the plan is still twice as well funded as it was from the day I sat here and we presented the first time on this. And if you compare it to 12, 11 years ago, or from the valid date to July 111, you're four times as well funded. So. You know, we can't guarantee that the assets are going to perform at 30% every year or ever, over two years, and that the liabilities are going to decrease with every passing valuation. But on a long term, when you look at things in the long term, you, you see a trend that has been improving. I mean, at 44%, that is the second highest funded percentage on the chart, um, even with everything that's happened in fiscal 22. And now every year we're going to be doing this exercise every year as opposed to every two years. So as Ken has said, we'll be able to monitor this, these happenings more frequently and you know, address any changes that need to be made or any strategies that need to be considered you know, if, we continue, if we continue to see volatility in the markets, what have you. So that is my presentation on the res valid results for the OPEP plan for June 30, 22. And that concludes the presentation. We'd be happy to take questions. Thank you for the presentation. Um, any members of the council have questions on the presentation before I open it up to the public? Vice Mayor Wiley. 
couple of questions and I'll start from the back since that's where we just were. So tell me what again, what was the CERBT you would, that we just saw, okay. what does it stand for? Yeah, that is the California Employees Retirement Benefits Trust. Um, and they have three portfolios that participating municipalities can invest their OPEB assets in. Strategy one, two, and three. Strategy one being the most aggressive. And you said we are the most You aggressive. are strategy one. Mm -hmm. So if, if you were in strategy three, my investment return, our investment return assumption would not be six and a half. We would be somewhere closer to maybe between five and a half, five and three quarters. I'm, I, I don't know exactly. That's only because of the asset allocation under strategy three. They're more conservative investments, probably more fixed, higher proportion to fixed income as opposed to equities. But it helped us last year. It, so it oh, yeah. Last yeah. Year. I mean, yeah, presumably. Yeah. Right, right, right. I mean, right. And it, all the service strategies probably did very well during fiscal 21. Right. And so these numbers that you just showed us in this chart, um, you had June 2022. So this doesn't have a lag. This is where you think we are now. That's where you were at June 3022. We will do an actual exercise of June 30, 23, based on the census of employees and retirees as of June 30, 23. So, you know, assets, you know, between June 30, 22 and now, likely, you know, the last half of 22 wasn't very good either. So okay. are we going to hit six and a half percent for June 30, 23? I don't know. There's still some time, but if we, if, if you do, it probably won't be markedly better. Okay. We, we certainly don't know how the, the, the liability as far as demographic experience is going to work. We won't know that until we get census data. So. But it's just six months behind. It's not a year. And six oh, months sure. oh, certainly. Yeah. Yes. Right. Yes. Right. As opposed to the PERS plan where, you know, CalPERS has operating, they have a lot of things, a lot of people in the CalPERS plan. So I can appreciate while they're, they're a little behind where we are. And then the last question with this part, um, where you were showing what was going up and what was going down, and one of them was the health care claim. Yeah. And you said, you know, that, 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 that the change in the assumption was different. And is that just the claims cost, or does that include the premiums? The premiums are an input into the claims cost model. What we, what our health actuaries do, and I, I'm glad you brought up that point, because I'm going to make this, our health care assumptions are set by health care actuaries who reside in the San Francisco office. I sit in Virginia, so I'm not going to have a Virginia actuary try to tell me, develop claims health care assumptions for California municipalities. We rely on health actuaries from our San Francisco office who have familiarity with the PEMCA plans and what goes on with them. And they set these healthcare claims assumptions and trend assumptions, because our trend assumptions, how we assume that they're going to increase over time. We, their annual rates of increase, that uh, they have a model that does this. I am not a health actuary, but they are qualified to do it. So that increase is both those together. Right. So you said you've been working with Backable since 2017. Have you been in Virginia the whole time? I have been in Virginia the whole time. Okay. I've actually worked with Vacaville since 2015. All right. So I'm, you know, I'm always happy to come here every two years. Now it might be every year. So, um, but yeah, I find the staff, you know, very pleasant to work with, very informed. I appreciate the concern from the community about this plan. Um, it's always good to know that your work is looked at and it means something. So. Okay, I have one more question. But yes. Before I have a plug, stop by downtown before you leave and go back to Virginia. <laughs> All right, so my last question had to do with the previous part of the, con uh, where you were talking about the lags, and one was 2020 and one was 2021. Um, 
And so then we were looking at what it's really going to be in 24 and 25. And so I'm just curious because we have been adding quite a bit of staff and we're looking at adding more staff, is that going to make the increase in 2024 actually like twice as big because we're headed, having hit by this and we're having more staff? So for, for CalPERS, for their pension assumptions, they do have a payroll growth assumption. So as far as adding more staff, they're gonna expect uh, agencies like ourselves to, to add more staff. It would um, cause an increase if the, the number of staff that we added or like the cost really ended up exceeding their assumptions. And um, I'm not so well versed in their details to where I could say, well, they're assuming it, you know, we're gonna add 500,000 or whatever the amount is, but that's how that would play out is that they're assuming that our payroll is gonna grow because of staff or um, you know, wage increases, things of that nature. And we would see a loss if it was higher than our assumption. Well, it seems like it may be higher than it would be because we're trying to backfill the vacancies that we had. So that's what I just wanted to know. It's, so it's some, some growth is built in is what you're telling me. Correct. Okay, yeah. thank you. Those are my questions. Yeah. Mr. Vice Mayor, just a point of clarification. Our valuations, and I'm sure CalPERS, at least from the OPEP side, we do not assume new entrants. We value, we look at the population as it exists as of the valuation date. So when you have someone hired, they their liability, their past service liability, which is the actuarial liability, is not going to be that significant early on because they don't have many years of service. They just were hired recently. What could happen is that the normal cost, which on the prior, Kevin, or sorry, Ken discussed what goes in your actual determined contribution. It's the normal cost, which is the cost of the benefits accruing during the year for active employees. Retirees have no normal cost because they're done. They're not accruing any service. Generally, if you, the, purport, the percentage increase in your active population, if you see your normal cost could increase in a similar percentage. If you had a 10% increase in population, that component of the, of the contribution might increase, maybe not exactly 10, but you can expect an increase in your normal cost. But their past service liability, which goes into your unfunded liability calculation, would not be terribly significant because they've just been hired. They have no service. As they accrue more service and they become more seasoned, their liability grows until the point that they retire, and then the liability doesn't grow, it just gets paid down as they receive benefits. So I just want to add some clarification there from like from OPEB, which I'm familiar with. So I'm not going to speak about the, the pension plans, but just to help clarify. Thank you for the presentation. Um, sound, it's always very complicated, but just like personal investments, we always want a good year. One of the questions I had was we're using strategy one. Who determines that? And as we see a changing in our forecast, since OPEB is really what we're, we're, we're kind of looking at right now, obviously PARS is a closed program in a supplemental pension. Um, strat I mean, you, you kind of indicated certain percentages. Would we be better off? And when do we make decisions to say, maybe we need to rethink our, our investment strategy and not be so aggressive in a volatile market? So as far as who makes that decision, I mean, that's something that we make a decision on here as a city. Um, I'm not sure if, I, I wanna say that we set up the CERB trust, it might've been in 2009, I believe, and so I think it's probably been in, in CERB once since the beginning. You know, what factored into that decision? Uh, primarily when you're looking at the OPEP trust, we haven't taken any distributions out of there. 
we've pretty much tried to, well, what we're trying to do is uh, we want to be conservative enough to where we're not taking unnecessary risks, but we also want to maximize our returns because the unfunded liability is a huge amount of money. And in order to, you know, kind of um, to fund that, we need to maximize and kind of get the best returns we can. And so it is like a balance of, you know, risk and not being, um, and, you know, kind of being conservative, but also trying to maximize your returns. But um, I think it's been like that since 2009. I want to say the two differences between the, the two allocations as far as uh, SERP 1 and SERP 2 is I think SERP 2 is just, it's going to invest more in like fixed income, which is a lot more conservative. But like Eric was saying, if we were to lower our, um, go with a different allocation, then that would also mean that the discount rate, so sort of what um, Eric is actually assumes that we're going to make, that comes down as well. And then when you have the discount rate go down, our unfunded liability number is going to go up because the assumption is that we're not going to make as much on our, our funds because we're in a much more conservative plan. So it is one of those things you have to balance where you could go extremely conservative, but then if we're only going to make, let's say, 3 or 4%, our unfunded liability is going to be a lot higher than what's currently in our valuation because the assumption is that we're not going to be making as much in investment earnings. Thanks for the explanation. It's helpful in this discussion. It can be very complicated for for those who may not necessarily necessarily understand all the financial implications <laughs> and the long-term implications. And you said something is we've not made disbursements out of this fund, correct? This is this is that investment that is a long-term strategy for the healthcare on uh, retirement re yeah. retiree Medicare, correct? Yes, that's, that's correct. And just in, in Virginia, where I work with over 100 plans, those who fund and not all OPEB plans are funded. Many of the municipalities I work with in Virginia do not fund OPEB. They just pay, they just make it, we're gonna fund it or are gonna pay benefits outside the trust. They don't have a trust period. But those that do have a trust do not use a trust yet to pay benefits either, which is sort of important when a pension trust, pensions always use a trust to pay benefits. It's unheard of for a pension fund not to use the trust to pay benefits. They don't pay you don't see them paid out of general revenues. But OPEB is just something that, you know, I can't speak to the genesis of why that is, but they just would rather wait and pay benefits from the trust at a later time. I don't know when that time is going to be. They're more than welcome to do it, both here and in Virginia. I, I, have, I did work with some California municipalities that did. I no longer do. Um, so it, some do use their trust for that purpose. But City of Backville is not alone in not using the trust yet to pay OPEB, they tend to they make the benefit payments outside the trust, and that counts as a contribution. We talk about the the annual actual determined contribution because you're not using the trust. Those benefit those you're paying from general revenues that counts towards those actual determined contribution figures because it is a contribution. <laughs> you're just not making it to a trust. You're making it directly to retirees. So it does count towards that number. Whereas if you were paying it from the trust, you couldn't count those benefits paid as towards your actual determined contribution. Thank you. Council Member Silva. Uh, that was a great question from Vice Mayor. A uh, great question there. I think, so, so I don't think you were suggesting that we do uh, lower to a lower tier, but. No, just an yeah, explanation. Yeah, and it was, helps uh, to understand that. Absolutely. Uh, that's that was a great, great question, good explanation. I think, you know, kind of going back to the figure, um, you know, everything's going up. So I guess the, it's a good question in the sense that, uh, you know, anytime we have investments, you know, we're always advised to like, don't get 
stay the course, be calm, right? Um, at what point would we suggest? At what point would staff or outside consultants suggest that hey, we look at a different approach? I could start with this, and then Eric can chime in if uh, I happen to miss something. But um, my understanding is, I, I think we, so. Currently, our funded status is forty-four percent. What we're noticing with the the ADC and how much we're having to pay in retiree premiums, that number continues to go up. It's not coming down. And so, um, you know, when I've had this explained to me in the past, you want to make sure that your funded status is kind of closer to that 80 to 90 percent range as opposed to the 44 percent that we have right now. And then you also want to see that your retiree premiums, so the amount that we're paying for kind of our retirees every year, that that amount's starting to come down. We're starting to stabilize because um, with the trust distribution, we can only take, um, I think the amount that we can take from the trust, it's uh, the it's the combination of how much we put in for that year and then how much we're actually paying in retired premiums. So we don't want to be caught in a situation where let's say, for example, that we're only paying like $500,000 to retirees in a year um, because that's going to be the only amount we can take out. And so if we have $80 million sitting in a trust, we're going to be limited to only taking $500,000 out a year. And so that's one of those things that um, as far as the best time, I think it would depend on sort of when we're seeing those retired payments stabilize. Um, and then I think that and our funded status increase, that would be the approach that if, when I've kind of talked to the CERP folks as well, that's sort of been what they've suggested is that, you know, you don't want to have your retired payments um, decrease significantly, but you do want to see it start to stabilize. You want to see your funded status increase a much higher than where we're at right now before you start considering you know, going that route and going more conservative. What you could do, and I'll, I'll just make one more point on this. I talked to Ken about this, this um, for funding, not for accounting, because for accounting, you must, on your financial statements, the city must disclose assets on a market value. There's no wiggle room there under GASB. For funding, you could look at using what we call an asset smoothing method with H valuation, meaning that you, we could recognize a portion of asset overperformance or underperformance each year. We could do it over three years, five years, whereas you know, I was here in June sort of in 21. I came in here and assets had grown from 38.4 to 61.5 from June 30, 19 to June 30, 21. I believe it was like 30% returns compared to the six and a half percent assumption. Under asset smoothing, what you say is, okay, you we we you overperform, but we're only gonna recognize a portion of it. You don't get to take the whole, you don't get to recognize the whole thing. You're going to hold some of it back, and you're going to recognize it over three. I, I'm just using three and five as an example. It's, it can be four. By the same token, if your assets underperform, you don't have to recognize the entire underperformance. You can recognize only a portion of it, but understanding that you're going to bring in that underperformance under for the following two, three, four years. It just doesn't go away after one year. You're going to be bringing it in over a period of time. But what it does is it gives you a more stable funding measure for assets. We call them like sort of funding assets, not actual assets, funding assets for purposes of determining the actual determined contribution. Some of my municipalities in Virginia do it, some, many don't, but it, its main purpose is to dampen volatility. So in down markets, we'll call it, we call it the actual value of assets or funding value. The actual value of assets is gonna be higher than market in down markets because you're not recognizing all of your underperformance. But on the flip side, when things are going good, you don't get to take all those investment gains. You recognize a portion. It's just something to consider. Uh, we can help with that. Um, so 
I just want to throw that to because right, we really haven't had this kind of volatility <laughs> between in quite some time. I think we looked at, if you look at June 30, 19 and June 30, 22, assets, I think about six and a quarter is what they earned, which is close to our six and a half percent. But the annual returns are not anywhere near six. <laughs> they're 30. They're, minor, they're negative. They don't, but they average out to be about six and a quarter. So it's just something that there are mechanisms in place. I'm, I'm just throwing it out there. So just know you have some tools. That there are tools in the toolbox that can be used to help dampen asset volatility. This, that's nothing to do. It's nothing to do with the liability side. It's just on the asset side. And it doesn't help with respect to GASB, financial accounting under GASB, because under GASB, you must use market value. So. Thank you. It's uh, very helpful in uh, the explanation. Councilmember Ritchie. Thanks so much. Um, I really appreciate the work you guys all, all do. Um, I had the chance after my kids went to bed a few nights ago to actually dive in. It, it, <laughs> I, I find it fun. I clicked, um, I actually had a chance to really just Okay, that's something I had to really study coming elected because this is a hot topic. And so I really felt like it was kind of a flash in the past. Um, it's, it's really amazing, like, what people do at CalPERS and what our team here in the city and, and you as what you do for the city. Like, you guys are like the, the kicker in the end of the game. you got to get it right. And, like, a lot of people don't really understand how hard a job it is to put a massive portfolio like CalPERS together to make sure – People that, that work hard for the communities all throughout California has the ability to, at the end of their time, get exactly what they deserve and work hard for. There's a lot of work. I was looking through this. It was, I think, 200 pages of assets that they invested in. I was like, my God. I was looking at all of them. It was, it was interesting. It was really interesting. And some of the, some of the questions started smoothing. Um, 2009 to now, it's been interesting. It's been very different. So we're, we were in bucket one. And I, I'm not saying we should switch, but there's opportunities. I was, it was very interesting. How, how do we combat volatility and realize we're here and not get caught like deer in the headlights? One question is how soon, how many times are we allowed once a year to make a shift into a different bucket? And if that, what is the ramifications to kind of offset the, we are, we're living in a lot of inflation. Like if you pay attention, don't fight the Fed. He's gonna run, they'll run you over. Like he's giving the guidance. He's not let off the pedal. So inflation's here. We've reached about nine months ago something called a reverse inverted yield curve. So now the two years and 10 years are flipped. So I just had a conversation with my friends. I was like, wow, you guys are pretty smart. They're just telling me just this morning, they're taking a ton of cash and they're all buying six year treasuries because they're now paying 5%. These guys are making hand or fist because they're saying, you know what, Greg, the market's tough. Equities are scary. We're making more money with an inverted yield curve buying six-year treasury notes. So plan B is more um, of your fixed income. In 2021, 2019, the average two-year yield is 1.4. So who would, that's stupid. Like, who would do that? But now that it's 5%, you can be a clock, even a broken clock's right twice a day. I mean, it's a lot easier to get close to your 6% goal when you have a guaranteed 5% coupon from the federal government. So maybe it is time to shift some of the portfolio into like six-year treasury, six-month six treasuries until we figure our way out of the woods with inflation. Because we can, we can lock in 6% and 5% and 
on two year on six months treasuries, it might be worth it for everybody. So I don't know how fast we make the shift. I definitely want to explore that because like I had a great conversation with my friends and it was really eye-opening how you can benefit from kind of just really uh, taking care of the fixed incomes at the right time. Sure. So to answer that question, I mean, this came up really at the onset of the pandemic, I think back like in March or April when we were going through like the shutdowns because, you know, it, as we all know, the stock market really a tumble in that beginning part. And so I called SERPs about this, and there is no limit on sort of the number of times you could um, change your allocation. But um, one of the things that they had mentioned is that, you know, don't treat it like you're a day trader where, you know, we're calling them one day and say we want to be in, you know, allocation number three, and then calling them the following day and say we want to be in one again. And so, um, but to, to answer your question, there is no, there's no limit as far as how often we do that. But that is something that definitely came up during kind of the beginning of the pandemic where it was, you know, were only going to get worse. They weren't going to get better. And, you know, now we know that things went incredibly well. But of course, that was a different time. The federal government obviously paid it, put a lot of money to the stock market. And it's not, that's not the case this go around. But to answer your question, there is no limit on how often we switch. Thank you. Um, and I'm not, my own position is I'm not saying that we need to all of a sudden shift the funding mechanism. It's simply an exercise how we think about the investments, it's a shorter presentation when it's a really good year. There's no doubt. And it's okay to be critical when all of a sudden we're trying to understand what is the longevity uh, to this program. It's not being dispersed, looking at it for a long term. So it seems like it's in the highest um, potential gain, comes with risk. And so the desire I know from my perspective is as long as we're paying attention to what this looks like, and, uh, and knowing that, that this is a program that other cities don't have, and it was, it was put together in conjunction with staff along with um, the various uh, unions that were affected and trying to get us through a difficult time. And so it was very strategic, and uh, those who worked diligently before should be commended on putting this together. And so this is, this is an investment, and it's for the purposes of uh, caring for our uh, for our retirees. So, um, with that, I would like to uh, open it up to the public if anyone wants to provide comment. Hi, good evening. My name is Alicia Minion, and I just have a few questions. So, the Pars Trust is had the funding the the funding ratio that really took out. And um, it's always been really underfunded. And so, uh, and number one, I was wondering, did PARS hire Milliman? I was wondering who, who engaged the actuary for, for PARS? Because I noticed the correspondence was written to PARS, right? You know, that, that was on Milliman's letterhead. And then uh, number two, the, um, the, when you look at the uh, performance track record of CalPERS uh, in the CalPERS actual valuation report, I think it goes out at like 20 year track record. It, how's, how's the performance of PARS compared to CalPERS? And the reason why I ask is, and I don't know if this is a possibility, but on PARS, 
do you, does the city have the flexibility to hire a different manager? Can you have a different, you know, trustee? I don't, I don't know. It, it just seemed like once you sign up with PARS, you're kind of stuck with PARS. Is that the situation? Or can you move the assets of that to CalPERS? Because you don't just look at performance, you also look at fees, like the administrative fees. And I'm just wondering if you can save in any way by moving away from PARS, if that's a possibility. Also, I noticed the assumptions for the PARS actual report. There was wage inflation of 2.8%. There was another inflation figure, but I didn't know what it was about, 2.3. So I'm just curious, the, the wage inflation, um, you know, where where is that data point coming from? And when does it, when would it get adjusted? What's sort of the index on that? And then I also heard on the PARS, one of the reasons why the funding ratio um, declined was because there was more retirees than anticipated. And I was just wondering how did that generally impact um, the, the OPEB and and the um, and, and CalPERS as well. And I don't know if that was like really significant. And then um, the discussion about the CERBT, the strategy one and two, um, just, just as an FYI, you can look at the performance breakdown of those two strategies on the CalPERS website and they break it down by asset class. So um, Councilman Richie, you mentioned treasury. So they, there was like some tips. And so you can look at the makeup and then you can look at the performance over time for strategy one and two. In some cases, there wasn't a big difference. But anyway, just so you know, it's online and you can learn more about it. Thank you for the questions. And I'm not sure. certain if there's anything specific that you would want to address with those questions right now, or we can accept them and we can move that. So is there anything you wanted to comment on any of those questions? And thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, I think, yeah, for some of them, uh, as far as the, the PARS and Milliman relationship, I mean, that predates me. And I'm not sure if Eric, you know, from your time there, but I, I think Milliman. It, it also predates me too. So I'm not going to sit here and I don't want to get too far into the weeds on something I'm not an expert on. I just know that PARS and Milliman have worked together for many years. Um, I do know that PARS likes to be sort of like the middleman. They like to, like, they're the, I believe they, we contract with PARS and they run, they run the show, so to speak. But I'm not, again, I'm not, I don't want to get too far afield from something I'm really not intimately familiar with. And the, the other question uh, related to the wage inflation on, on PERS. So uh, CalPERS goes through this uh, cycle. I think it's a four-year cycle where they're looking at sort of what's their investment strategy is going to be part of that. They also um, go through an experience study. So that's where they're looking at sort of uh, over the past number of years um, what their assumptions. Do they need to update it on retirement? How quickly, um, how long people live, things of that nature. And so the most recent was recent one was as of November of 2021. I think that's when they updated the, the wage inflation um, was one of the elements. And so I think based off of the cycle, I think the next time they would look at it would probably be in another three or four years is my understanding of how that cycle works. Thank you. Mayor Carley, Madam Vice Mayor, Council, Mr. City Manager. John Bird, retiree, resident, 
Obviously, the city is impacted by CalPERS investments, both directly and indirectly. I got my newsletter from uh, CalPERS explaining that they've changed their position from being fiduciary to investing ESG. This is going to affect our cost to PERS, and that concerns me greatly because that difference, our philosophical view instead of being a fiduciary, is going to impact how much the city has to lay out. So I would encourage the city manager, you, Mr. Mayor, to direct somebody to to uh, look into this ESG. I have looked into it myself, and a number of states and municipalities have dumped investment firms that they, they don't have CalPERS and we're locked in. That's a good thing, actually. But they've gotten away from those who are interested in ESG rather than rate of return. As a resident and retiree, this concerns me a lot. Side note, I like how you think there, Mr. Ritchie. I think you're on the money. Thank you for looking into that. I hope you will. Thank you. Anyone else? Seeing none, I'll close public comment and bring it back to the council for any discussion. I'm seeing none, so do does anyone want to entertain a motion? It's an update. It's for just information, so there's no action to be taken on this. All right, so Mr. City Manager, 9B, thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Mayor and members of the council. Next item before you tonight is an update presentation on the status of the Enhanced Infrastructure Financing Districts. Our Community Development Director, Aaron Morris, is here to make the presentation. Uh, good evening, Mayor Carley and members of council. I feel honored to be here to present perhaps happier, happier information about the topic that's before us. So uh, by way of just very brief background, and by the way, our presentation is about 10 minutes in length, maybe 15, but um, on May 24th of last year, the council authorized a $40,000 contract with Cosmont Companies to help the city look at new ways to fund infrastructure, parks, and other features done a lot of work since May of 22, and we're here tonight to walk you through our initial findings and to seek your support in taking some next steps. So with that, I'd like to introduce Joe Diegas from Cosmont Companies, and he'll be doing the presentation. Thank you. Uh, thank you, uh, Mayor, members of the City Council. Good to be with you all. I'm Joe Diegas with Cosmont Companies. So the circumstance that we're stepping into, it's a positive circumstance. There's development opportunity in various portions of the city, downtown, northeast, northeast growth area, a few other areas. The, uh, the potential challenge here is that investments in infrastructure are needed to support that potential growth. Water, sewer, roads, other type of essential infrastructure to catalyze that growth. Uh, our task for you was to evaluate whether part of the plan to address that could utilize this new uh, sort of innovative form of funding and financing for infrastructure, uh, tax increment financing. So the popular example of this tool uh, is the Enhanced Infrastructure Financing District, the EIFD. 
So we were tasked to see, could this make sense in Vacaville? How could it make sense? How many dollars would we be talking about? How would it potentially look? So our analysis is showing that, yes, it could be feasible. We'd like to walk through how, in our opinion, it could be completely subject to your own thoughts and feedback, and then talk about um, ways to use it to potentially attract other dollars. These strategies typically work best when it's not only your investment, but you're attracting contributions from other entities. And then we'd like to sort of conclude with potential next steps, of course, subject to your thoughts on how this could proceed if you want it to proceed at all. I, uh, I'm going to repeat a few slides that we discussed way back in May. It's, it's been a long time. You receive a lot of presentations, and perhaps uh, not all were present at that time. When we say tax increment financing, the first thing I'll say, and I'll probably repeat it a number of times, is it's, it's not a new tax. If you'll uh, sort of forgive the call back to the previous presentation about retirement accounts, it's actually a pretty good analogy. There's a boundary that's drawn geographically within the city, some set of uh, parcels. As value grows over time from investment into those properties, either brand new development or rehab of underutilized properties, this mechanism allows the city and potentially other taxing entities who we may be able to recruit with us to allocate some piece of future property tax dollars just within that boundary and set it aside, sort of like that retirement account analogy set it aside in a special fund that will be restricted for infrastructure. And the idea, sort of with that same retirement account analogy, is to see if we can attract other partners, let's say the county of Solano, to be almost like an employer matching our contribution, uh, investing with us if they agree that what we're talking about funding in terms of infrastructure and the new development that we're talking about catalyzing could be of more than just benefit to this community, but perhaps the county or the larger region. So that's the idea. A few points I wanted to reiterate. Um, it's not just about what are, what's the infrastructure going to pay for. It's not just a capital improvement program. That's an important document that you already produce. A new document would govern the activities of the so-called district. It would be called the infrastructure financing plan. And we liken it more to a business plan. It's not just about what you're funding but it's about focusing on those investments into what can actually catalyze and facilitate the type of growth that you want and how could it also improve your ability to attract other dollars to fund those things. The process for putting this together, it's, it's because it's not a new tax, there's nothing like a landowner approval or two thirds vote like you may be familiar with for some other um, entities like CFDs or, or bids or PBIDs. There's a public hearing process and you're required to not only draft this plan, but present it very transparently to the public over a series of public hearings. So that, that's the, pro, uh, the, the process. What's eligible for funding? I talked about water, sewers, and roads. That's uh, probably the most popular types of, of improvements that are paid for with these entities. We'll show a graphic in a few slides. It's, it's broader than that. It's infrastructure very inclusively defined. Water, sewer, roads, uh, transit infrastructure. It could be affordable housing, parks, childcare facilities, libraries. It's quite broad, uh, somewhat under the umbrella of infrastructure. Why is it being done and why may it make sense for Vacaville? Uh, the target is infrastructure that needs to get paid for somehow. Uh, this is could be uh, a tool in the toolbox at your disposal. Oftentimes it should about just about generating some level of growth that wouldn't happen otherwise or happen as fast or as intensely. And about the general fund fiscal revenues that come from that, potential job creation, 
Um, it could be about housing production. Those are generally the reasons why we see other communities doing this. Uh, very importantly, number two, it's the ability about using these tools to attract other dollars. So there are in place, as an example, several grant programs at the state housing and community development level, HCD. You may have heard of the infill infrastructure grant or the affordable housing and sustainable community grant or transformative climate communities. These are very competitive grants that come in big buckets, 12 million, 15, 20, 25 million dollars for infrastructure oftentimes. And that department is prioritizing applications from jurisdictions that do these districts explicitly because that department state HCD is calling these districts sort of indication of, of pro-housing policies. And so for that, you get two or three points on a grant application, which is highly competitive, may not sound like a lot, but it could mean the difference between attracting those dollars or not. So that's sort of the, the grant lens in attracting other money. And then very importantly with the private sector, um, Oftentimes the default for paying for infrastructure and growth areas are impact fee programs or, or CFDs, both very common, very established. We look at these types of districts, the tax increment districts as being more of a, more of a way to insert the city side, the public agency side as um, sort of a, at the table with private sector landowners and developers. You would be putting some skin in the game, so to speak, with some piece of the future property tax within these areas. And it's sort of a currency that you can then use in landowner and developer negotiations to actually incentivize growth in these areas. So that's why in our experience, many of these are going on. There are you know, over 20 of these formed throughout the state. They're all so different. I prefer not to spend so much time talking about others, but we'll just say closest nearby, Fairfield is talking about this with the County of Solano. City of Sacramento has formed two. City of West Sacramento has formed one. County of Sacramento has formed one just outside of the airport. So it wouldn't be new to this region. So where we focused so far in Vacaville, it's evolved. We've sort of had a larger study area when we began in the summer of last year, and it's been become more and more focused, and that's the idea. Let's make no mistake about it. This is an encumbrance of future property tax dollars. The dollars just don't come from, they come from somewhere. And so part of our work has been focusing it on areas where we can sort of afford to allocate some piece of future property tax within a boundary while also continuing to feed, and not only feed, but grow the general fund with this investment of future dollars. So we're currently um, concentrated in the downtown, the Northeast growth area, kind of these parcels in the orange cumulatively, and a few other select parcels on the Eastern side of the city that um, we and staff have evaluated to be positioned for future potential growth. Just um, one note I'll make on this page, what, what does that mean in terms of the scale as a portion of the whole city? In terms of acreage, it's about 14% of your city that, we're, that we've been studying. But in terms of assessed value, assessed property value, it's actually under 3%, the bottom number on the far right. Um, so when we see ratios like that, 14% of your acreage, less than 3% of your value, for us that signals there may be value to be captured. These are truly value captured districts. And it's sort of a positive indication that we're looking in the right areas geographically. Um, we can probably advance. I, I just mentioned earlier the types of infrastructure that can be paid for, water, sewer, roads, and many other things. It's this huge list that I won't go into, but it starts with the words including but not limited to. So to the extent council may have ideas or thoughts or, or questions, there's a lot of flexibility and I'd be very happy to entertain those sorts of questions. Uh, just to quantify and make it transparent how we work, uh, we, we forecast value growth 
in terms of units of residential units of residential uh, product and square footage of non-residential projects and we uh, uh, forecast that out over time in this case over 20 years and it's by assigning assessed value factors that we come at or how much value future value are we potentially talking about here and it is significant in these areas over four billion dollars in today's dollars of the future potential development in the areas we're focusing on we emphasize much of the time um, other people's money, honestly, because you don't control the whole property tax dollar. For every dollar of property tax that's paid, the majority of school districts, community college, college districts, you know, this district wouldn't have access to those dollars. The city has only a piece of it. The county has a larger piece. And so the point we really wanted to make here is a lot of this is about, yes, perhaps investing some portion of your own, but then very importantly, trying to use that allocation to attract dollars from other entities that can participate with us. How many dollars are we talking about over time? Just to point out a couple um, values on this page uh, at a somewhat high level. Within five years, if you were to form this district and slowly we can catalyze some growth, generally speaking between five and a half and $24 million, depending on how much of our own dollars, whether or not we recruit the county as a partner, so within five years, between five and a half and $24 million for that infrastructure. As time goes on, as value potentially grows, and new development goes vertically, that value would increase um, within 10 years, potentially within uh, 15 to $64 million of, of funding available for infrastructure. So that's sort of the scale of what we're talking about here. And it increases in time as development goes vertical. Lots of ways to use the money. These districts can issue debt, much in the way the old redevelopment agencies could before 2012, but it's just one option. Just um, wanted to offer what we've been seeing in some other jurisdictions. In some cases where there are larger developers or developers that control a lot of land, in some cases we have examples where they may be willing to advance funding for a road extension or a water main expansion, and they just want a sort of guaranteed reimbursement mechanism. This is a source that works quite well in that context. It's very performance-based. If that developer builds their project, they create assessed property value. That creates funding capacity through this mechanism. There's a very direct line that the private sector can follow for reimbursement. That's much preferred to what is oftentimes the traditional approach, which is you set up a fee program. Other developers in the future may pay into that program at some uncertain time and location, and you're basically promising a piece of those future impact fees to that developer. Private sector does not like that as much. It's hard to predict. It's very indirect compared to a mechanism like this. So lots of ways to use the dollars. Um, just bonding is just one example. We talked about using it as a way to attract other funding. These are just some specific examples of the grants that we could attract. I'm happy to spend more time on that uh, for the sake of efficiency. I'll keep moving. Um, Fortunately, we're seeing more and more examples of these city-county partnerships. That, that's really the greatest benefit to our, to our cities pursuing this. It's when it's not just your dollars, but again, pursuing county partners. And, and fortunately, we're seeing more and more of that. So why do it? We Part of our analysis was to put some numbers, for it, numbers to it. So certainly housing creation, certainly job creation, both on a sort of temporary construction basis as well as an ongoing permanent basis. But the last set of bullets on the page is where we honestly spent most of our time, which is what does it mean for the general fund? First, can you even afford to do something like this, allocate some piece of your future property tax? But beyond that, can it be accretive? Is there a positive return on investment? 
by setting aside some future dollars, catalyzing some growth that wouldn't happen otherwise or as fast or as intensely? What is that sort of net net impact on the general fund over time? And so that was a direct input. This was somewhat iterative. We looked at it. We had to craft the boundary a little bit better. We had to craft how much could we afford to allocate to make sure this number continued to be positive. How could we make it most positive? And we're seeing um, in the geography that we showed and the funding scenarios, potential funding scenarios that I showed on that numbers chart, that this can be very positive to the city on the order of um, over $50 million of present value general fund positive impact over time. Um, I'll use the graphic on the next page to kind of show what we mean by that. We try to be very defensible, very legitimate. So we don't just assume, look, if you do this thing, some massive amount of growth happens. If you don't do this thing, nothing happens. It's not a fair statement. It's not, it's not true. Um, it's not defensible. So we kind of take a very, def uh, we try to take a realistic approach that says, yes, if you consider setting aside some piece of your future property tax, it's a very important signal the private sector, to grant sources, yes, uh, a more intense, perhaps a quicker level of development will happen, but you're setting aside some piece of future, future property tax, and you're also, whenever you're growing, you're incurring more expenditures, public safety, community services, there are costs associated for a city in growing. So sort of net of all that, what's the bottom line fiscal impact to the city, that's our green line here. And then in our blue line, we take a very defensible approach. Look, if you don't do this tool, something's probably still gonna happen. You'll likely still attract some level of private sector investment, but it likely wouldn't be as intense or as quick if it happens at all. Um, but then you're also not setting aside some piece of future property tax. So what does that look like? And so we're always tracking this sort of green versus blue to make sure if you're gonna do this at all, it better be a positive return on investment. And so that's what we're seeing fortunately under the set of circumstances that we've arrived at. This can be um, absolutely accretive for the general fund over time. Uh, I've, I've repeated these just points that we wanna hammer home. It's great if you do it on your own, it's even better when you get other people to partner. Um, we're very careful about what percentage we're talking about potentially allocating so that it's a positive return, not just can you afford it, but how can you generate positive return? And then letter D, what are we gonna choose to fund? That's still further work needed. Always love to hear um, the feedback from council tonight and in subsequent conversation. That's a step that if you wanna continue with this at all, we'd like to continue to go down that past path. When we talk to someone like the county, if you uh, authorize that work to talk to them about potential partnership, we'd like to get their own thoughts. If they're gonna partner with us on this, what may their priorities be on projects that would be paid for? Is it water, sewer roads? Is it something else? What can city and county together agree uh, as the projects that make sense to fund? Yeah, please. There's a whole roadmap uh, for the sake of time. I won't go through it all. So we've obviously, we formed many of these districts across the state. There's a prescribed way. I covered the basics earlier. You prepare a plan. It has to be very prescriptive. What are you gonna do with the money? How much money over what time period? What are the impacts on the general fund and for anyone else that partners with you? And you have to present that plan over a series of public hearings. City council would approve. If the county were a partner, county board would approve. Sort of lots of transparency, nowhere to hide. It's meant to be very different from the old age of redevelopment agencies where you didn't have to be so transparent and accountable with the public on what you were gonna do with the money. Very different game this time around. So lastly, next steps, potential next steps. Very importantly, hear your questions. It's a very, it's a very technical subject matter. We wanna clarify anything that I may not have clarified well. Um, the, 
sort of suggestion or the ask in the staff report is if you're okay with this idea at all, perhaps after we answer any questions, would you authorize staff to talk to the county at some level about interest in this, if you wanna go down this path at all? And then based on that, next steps after that could include, all right, let's refine this. If county is in, what's their allocation? Does that change anything about what we wanna allocate as a city? Let's get more specific about the projects we would fund. And again, only at that time, if, if uh, counts were pleased with this sort of approach, then implementation mode, getting the district formed and then sort of immediately potentially going on the road to use that district to attract other dollars, both public and private. So thank you for, for sitting through that uh, presentation. We'd be very happy to address questions. Thank you. Uh, Council member Silva. Hi, yeah. can we go uh, back to 19? Slide 19. Uh, just a quick question. Um, so it looks like the green line. So number one, is this is this what the account would look like at the end of 50 years, or is this? Yeah, this is meant. Uh, sorry for not clarifying. So this is meant to be over time each year through a potential 50-year district lifetime. They could be as long as 50 years. They don't have to be. They could be shorter. But this shows sort of every year is what the line shows up until year 50. At year 50 this district in this scenario would theoretically terminate. You're no longer allocating whatever percentage of property tax that you approved at the beginning. You say, okay, district turned off, all the dollars will now flow unencumbered to our general fund, and that's the huge uptick at year 50. This is what's every year up until year 50. And then, so these these other counties, they're just, they're just pulling the money over time, or are they dispersing it and reinvesting it as they go along? Yeah, so uh, the other city county partnerships. Sorry. Um, so all of them have been set up the way the tool is set up. It sort of trickles in over time okay. um, as value, sort of development comes out of the ground, proven score vertical. Usually your first two years, that's nothing to write home about. It's minimal growth because you've just formed the district. Your base year is, um, sort of your base value is zero because you've just formed the district. So the first few years, the dollar is hitting the account, so to speak maybe tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars. It usually takes four or five years for most of these to pick up steam until you're actually like in the millions of dollars of potential dollars to fund infrastructure. But the way it works is, yeah, annual disbursements as property is assessed, people pay the property tax bills. Um, this is just some piece of that pie. And then this district would have the ability to use that revenue stream if it wanted, to use that revenue stream and issue bonds based on whatever that revenue stream is at, at that time. Yeah, just when I see this, I, I see the growth greater in the beginning than I do as it goes over time. So it's like a limiting, it's like, you know, just a limiting, uh, what you guys call it, economics. Diminishing returns. I don't call them biochemistry. Uh, <laughs> yeah, log diminishing returns. So it looks like, you know, that growth, so that, uh, that relationship's much greater in the beginning, you know, it's at 20 years, tapers off, um, and it's greater than the, uh, without the IFD. So um, so here I, I would argue that, I mean, sorry, the way I kind of see is like we see greater growth after two year two or three. Um, yeah, so I guess the other side of it is I, I just, I just want to be realistic of how much, uh, how much funds we hear come in. Cause like uh, when, when I saw schools, I'm like, oh, okay, maybe this is a mechanism to help out address schools, but it's, it's not. The, the good news is that the value grows. They get a piece of it because they get a piece of the property tax dollar. So it's good for them. They're getting more dollars. The limitation is they just can't put any of those dollars into this tool. So they're kind of a beneficiary, but they're not a participant in terms of giving this tool their dollars. So they're sort of a passive beneficiary. 
It's okay. It, it does grow their property tax dollar. Thank you for clarifying. Thank you for the presentation. Um, seeing no other questions from the council, I'm going to open it up to public comment. Oh, you, okay, sorry. There we go. Council Member Chapman. Thank you. How long has this funding uh, mechanism, for, um, funding source been available, been in existence? First I've heard of it. Since, since 2014, we consider that pretty recent, since 2014. 2014. And do we have any, public entities um, nearby that are presently using this funding source? The closest ones that are fully formed are there are two of these in the city of Sacramento, one in the county of Sacramento, the Metro Air Park development just outside the airport, and then the city of West Sacramento. Those are sort of fully formed to our east. To our west, there are several in the Bay Area and the city of Napa. Closer, but not yet fully formed, is the city of Fairfield, who've done sort of the similar preliminary evaluation, have approached the county of Solano. Feedback has been positive so far. No one has signed on the dotted line yet, so there's no victory yet. It has been a positive conversation for Fairfield and the county of Solano about partnership so far, but not yet fully formed. Thank you. Real quick, you mentioned um, that uh, when you look at this kind of funding source, there's a lot more transparency than there was in redevelopment. We could probably talk all day on redevelopment. Most uh, great to hear from you and or maybe even some way to summarize that uh, in the absence of redevelopment after 20, 2012, the Great Recession trying to fund everything, it became uh, evident that cities did not have a way to fund redevelopment. So other terms now would be called revitalization. How, how do cities build infrastructure when there is no more redevelopment. Am I correct on this? I would agree, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. This is not the new redevelopment because it's very different from the redevelopment that was abolished in 2012, particularly because the city can only capture our share of the property tax pie. We can't engulf everybody else's, right or wrong. The old redevelopment <laughs> brought a lot more money to the table, but this appears to be, from staff's perspective, one of the few tools that can function a little bit like redevelopment and basically create a funding source for the city of Vacaville to leverage in our infrastructure projects going forward. And then a follow-up question with that. 2014, relatively new, and there's very few of these statewide. And even listening to Councilmember Silva look at these, I see inflections early on 10 years and 20 years, the diminished returns. Is that based on projections that there is build-out and so you don't continue to increase. But if I read this correctly, at the end of 50 years, it uh, while the, the EIFD ends and it terminates, whenever it's 50, it could be 20, 25, 30, that spike there, can you explain what that represents so Absolutely. everyone understands? Thank you. Absolutely. Um, yeah, the, the, I'll start at the beginning of the question about the timing. So yeah, introduced in 2014, I don't think any of them were formed until 2017. That's where the first ones were formed. And now we have 22 of them, most of them in 2019, 2021, 20, 22. It's sort of grown quite quickly to where we are today. The whole point about inflection, it's absolutely based on forecast of development. So the way we do that is we look at what's approved in terms of your planning documentation and then staff tracks sort of a development pipeline of actual potential new projects. And we forecast that out um, over time. 
So the steepest areas of growth in those early years is because that's where our development projections are concentrated pretty much everywhere throughout years zero through 20. If development takes longer, uh, that will be a flatter line. If it happens better than forecasted, it would be an even steeper slope kind of early on. The answer to the last part of your question is the same in any scenario, though. Why, why, why the spike at the end? Uh, so my comment earlier was, make no mistake about it, this is an encumbrance of future property tax dollars. The general fund would be setting aside some portion, even if it's just a quarter or half of the property tax, just within this boundary. But it is setting aside some piece of property tax outside of the general fund and putting it into a special fund that is restricted for specific purposes. In this case, infrastructure. That's an encumbrance of general fund dollars. What would happen after this district terminates is you're releasing that encumbrance. Everything that you've been sort of putting into that retirement account, you're saying, I'm gonna stop contributing to that. I'm just gonna put it all in my checking account. The checking account being the general fund in this analogy. So at that year 50, you're saying, I'm done contributing to the special fund. I'm gonna put, so let 100% of my property tax dollars within this area just go right into my general fund. You're sort of turning off the spigot for this tool and directing all those dollars back into the general fund. That's the uptick. You've created some growth in that green line. That's a great thing, but it's sort of cost you some allocation each year throughout the lifetime of this district. It's cost you some allocation, some percentage of your property tax. At the end of it, you're done allocating, you, you sort of um, return to full. Um, all the dollars flow back to your general fund. You could really realize that that year 50, the fruits of your labor. Thank you. Council Member, or Vice Mayor Wiley. And on this graph that we're looking at, is this um, only supposing the city's involvement and not the county's involvement? And if we did get the county involved, then the green line would be even higher? So, so we would say yes, that kind of goes into the world of the subjective. To be very clear, this is the city general fund um, perspective. If we or staff or whoever went to talk to the county about partnership, we would wanna do this from the county general fund perspective. But to your, your question specifically, it's the, the key question at hand is if the county is in, can we either- Pay more money. Could we get more money overall or could we afford to give less of our dollars because they're matching us? I see. Um, in either of those scenarios, you could argue, yeah, you'd probably look even better. So I, I want to say yes, but there's a little bit of subjectivity that I wanted to explain before just saying yes. Okay. Yeah. With that, uh, seeing no more questions up here, I'm going to open it up to the public for comment. Alicia Minion again. Okay, so I have a lot of questions. I'm gonna to try to get through the three minutes. So number one question, what are the risks? What is the downside? Um, who is accountable for the funds in the TIF? Let's say it generates money and there's money, so who's <coughs> accountable? What mechanism is in place so that there's some enforcement mechanism in case it's misspent? Who controls the money? Who controls the district? Who are the administrators? And so let's talk about the TIF. It's gonna, it's gonna issue bonds to finance the infrastructure. I'm hearing that the district can be 50 years. Um, so what is the maturity of the bonds? Is there any limit? Can it be 25 years? Can it be 50 years, 40 years? 
because a lot of times when you see these special districts, sorry, even like Melarus where they issue debt, like, like, like the one we're gonna have for Lagoon Valley, sometimes these special districts, their, their purpose is to really facilitate something that the city maybe doesn't want to do directly. So they find a way to do something indirectly. And generally it's not necessarily in the best interest in the best interest of the public. So I think it's really important that you understand the long-term risk. Now, um, Mayor Crowley, you mentioned redevelopment. Exactly what happened. So redevelopment agencies, they were dissolved because Governor Brown, he saw that there was so much mal malfeasance in redevelopment agencies. I mean, there was waste, fraud, and abuse, and it was systemic. And so when the city's redevelopment agency was dissolved, along with all the other cities, there was tremendous financial harm to the cities where the redevelopment agencies were dissolved. Depending what the activity was, some were harmed more than others. So I think I wouldn't do anything unless you have a 100% understanding of what are the risks. And I don't understand why the grants or they'll be available money that's available to a TIF. I don't understand why we can't just get that. Why can't the city just get that? And and then also there's a term about additional funds. I don't I don't I, I don't know what that means, but all I know is it's the city, whatever new is constructed is not gonna be on your tax roll. That money, is that correct? So so I'm concerned about the property within these TIFs, and I'm also concerned about the areas that the city's highlighted. And correct me if I'm wrong, but is some of the shaded area in yellow, is that outside our urban limit line? I'm just wondering like, what, what, what's the benefit of that? Now, I have like 10 other questions, so I will email. Thank you. Just let me know who I need to email, and I will email them, but number one. Well, and what you'll be able to do is, be sure and put those questions together, and you can yeah. always uh, email them to, to Ms. Morrison. Got it. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, you raise you raise questions. This is like an entry stage to this, and and tonight may not be the the time for all of them. It's time to gather information to decide to receive. Ultimately, tonight is to receive a presentation, and potentially direct staff to begin communication with the county to see where this may go. And so it's no more complicated than that. Um, it's always interesting trying to find mechanisms for funding, especially in infrastructure. Um, to your to your one point, though, I will say there's some that are in the, the the boundary. Some are within the city limits. Some of it's part of planned growth. So I think that that is something for discussion. That for for the purposes of a presentation, it's more in the conceptual. Here's where we could go with funding, and here's what we could do. But, um, in the interest of time, I don't. I don't think we have. We can answer all those questions, but I don't know if there was any comment that you wanted to make at all uh, before I, I, we we move forward. I'd like to just make two brief comments. One, a public financing authority would be established. It would have elected officials from the city, and if the county joined the county, and also members at large. So, there is a lot of public oversight. I want to answer that because I feel like that could be um, really nerve wracking when you're hearing that question. The second one about what are these projects, is this stuff the city wants to make happen? I just want to also reiterate that point that I think Joe made earlier. 
that everything that happens is within the control of the of the city and county, this public financing agency, and it relates to the city's general plan and established priorities. So those are the two answers, but we, as you said, we're in the early days of vetting these ideas and having these conversations, and I encourage people to email me if they'd like to have more substantive answers. Thank you. There's no doubt that it's always good to understand the risk and the benefits. I wrote that note my, myself down before you said that, so thank you. Anyone else from the public want to comment on this? All right, seeing none, I'm going to bring it back to the council. Councilmember Silva and then Councilmember Stockton. Um, actually, I'm interested in the, the risk. Are there any risks with this? Yeah, absolutely. I, I want to repeat uh, an earlier comment. There, make no mistake about it. This is an encumbrance of a piece of your future property tax. Yes, it's restricted to a specific geographic area wherever the boundary is that you decide. And yes, it's no portion of, of today's dollars. You're not changing about anything about today's property tax, but you're talking about future, potential future property tax. If this development happens, you're setting aside a piece of that growth. But even then, that's a piece of growth that will no longer be available for your unrestricted general fund. That's the major sort of downside here. You're, you're tying up funds that would otherwise be unrestricted. You're making sure they're dedicated for infrastructure. I mean, it's a good thing if you care about infrastructure, but it's also making those dollars no longer available to fund other things that that, that may come up. So it's for, for that's the main downside. You yeah, only I, do it. I, yeah. I would think that for me to be the most concerning risk as you know, I'm, I'm will, willing to support this moving forward, but uh, that's something I'd, I'm curious to see how that yeah. shapes out. Thank you. Councilmember Stockton. Yes, thank you for the presentation. I am <clears throat> cautiously optimistic. Um, I do want to know more about the risks, um, but I think the thing that concerns me the most is the extended amount of time. We're learning every council meeting how fast things can change in Sacramento and how fast we can lose control over the investments that we make and the fact that we're making a 50-year investment into infrastructure to build things that we want to build now but may not have control over in six months to a year is terrifying. And so I guess... One of the things that I, moving forward, I would like to know is I, I really think we need to dial in the zoning in the areas. I'd like to have a priority of what staff feels, which areas are the most um, viable for, for this. Um, also, I think that, and I know we're going to talk about it really soon, uh, some of the objective standards that we want to set for the city related to development, future development, and whether these um, developments are what we want for Vacaville. So really nervous about 50 years that's just that's just an eternity when it comes to development I, I recognize that we want um, to invest in Vacaville and we want to bring you know businesses and jobs and affordable housing and different things like that I just I just don't want to be a sucker Councilmember Richie oh um, thanks presentation I really appreciate um, kind of the explanation I like to see other cities um, you know, it's very interesting that about 90% of this is going to be in the unincorporated area. That's the county, the area that's, that will possibly urban reserve. Um, was 9% of this is in district two. So it's very interesting for me to really see the fact that this growth and idea would be around my backyard. I have to kind of really pay attention to what's going on. Um, I, I have been paying attention and it's, it's interesting to see the other cities throughout California, how they're cooperating with the county. And I think, 
as we talk about our plan in Vacaville. Um, we're having more conversations, actually starting the process already. Maybe I'm starting the process already of really realizing that if we're going to think big, we better we better get everybody involved. And so I, I've been I've been talking to county representatives for quite a while about what is what is the master plan? Like what can we do to start working together to start creating a dialogue? And it's very interesting to see that this opportunity will be in District Two predominantly, and we can really take a a stab at it. it doesn't work it doesn't work but to really get the county and the city all rowing in the same direction um, as we build out the master plan build out the biotech build out the tech corridor it's we're going to close the gap it's going to happen i was i was in the city almost thirty thousand, and now it's not it, it's going to come let's try to be like artists let's mold the city in the best shape we want and this could be an awesome opportunity I mean, we're going to close a gap between Leisure Town and Elmira. It's going to happen. It may be two years or 50. But at some point, we got to make sure we, we, we monetize, make sure we can set, we can do the right thing that maybe the growth might not happen in every district. But that growth in certain districts can benefit the whole city. We, we got to take a good look at this. So I, I'm, I'm for it, but I share, you know, concerns. And nothing's without risks. But if we really take a slow approach at it, I think the team here will make sure it's right. Councilmember Silva. Motion. Right, prior to the motion, I just wanted to just add a comment, and that is, is when we think of these, what I would ask is, is that when we look at the risk, you know, there, time is a risk factor here. What's, what's the value between a shorter period versus a longer period? It doesn't require an answer now, but I would, I would, um, I'm supportive to walk down a path to understand this better. Obviously, post redevelopment, Sacramento trying to do revitalization, they continue to change things and what are they gonna change the next few years? Do we jump on one bandwagon only to miss the next one? Because this is the challenge that cities are facing is, is how do we, provide infrastructure at costs that cities can't afford. And so I, my uh, recommendation also in this, the way I feel is, is as staff goes through this is to also research those areas where it is, it's been fully um, implemented and what do we learn from them? What, what are the lessons learned from those and what is the length of time? And those that may have either done it alone and those that have done it in partnership with counties so that we really have a good understanding of you know, what is the risk, what are the benefit? Is there a, an opportunity where we don't have to look at 50 years, but there's, a, there's also a limited side to the return that you'll be able to get for the investment. I think it'll help us make a wiser decision depending upon what we learn um, after tonight as we go forward. So with that, um, Councilmember Silva, do I have a motion? Uh, motion to approve 9B. Second. We have a motion and a second. All in favor? Aye. 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 Any opposed? No opposed? All right, so we've received the presentation. Thank you very much. And that's to direct staff to begin this discussion with the county and to see where we can go from here with the comments. So appreciate it. Thank you. Mr. City Manager, item 9C. Thank you, Mr. Mayor, members of the City Council. This next item is another presentation, this time from Marin Clean Energy, related to alternatives for renewable electric supply. 
And uh, as Mr. Sebastian Tom from MC uh, joins us here at the podium, I'll just introduce it uh, real quickly, a little bit of background. Um, the, city, the city strategic plan uh, includes objectives for uh, promoting climate and energy sustainability, along with support for green energy and renewable alternatives. And so with that, and then based on council's uh, interest that you've expressed in the past about becoming a net zero uh, community, as well as um, you know our interest in compliance with our general plan on these particular policies, I felt it was appropriate to invite uh, Mr. Khan here to give us an update on uh, what MCE is doing in Solano County and what they can possibly do for our community. So with that, I'll turn it over to Mr. Khan who will walk you through his presentation. Sure, you can go to the podium and, and turn on your microphone. All right, well, thank you, Mr. City Manager, uh, Mayor Carley, Madam Clerk, members of the City Council. My name is Sebastian Kahn. I'm a Senior Community Development Manager with MCE. Uh, MCE is a community choice aggregation program. We are a not-for-profit public agency that enables cities and counties to have more control over the source of the electricity for their city uh, residents and businesses. I'm also joined tonight by my colleague, Jenna Tenney, who's our manager of brand communications and community engagement, and really thrilled to be here tonight in Vacaville. Um, a little bit more background about MCE. There are 37 communities that are members of our Joint Powers Authority, all of which have voting representation on our board of directors, which allows for local decision-making and the ability to provide clean, renewable electricity on behalf of residents, businesses, and municipal facilities. Tonight's presentation is brief. Um, it's an introduction to MCE, just to give you a sense of who we are as an agency and our governance structure. And with that, I think we can dive in. So as mentioned, we enable 37 different jurisdictions across four counties, Marin, Napa, Contra Costa, and Solano, uh, with the ability to purchase clean, renewable energy on behalf of their communities. And this slide helps illustrates how that works in practice. So as you may know, all electric customers' bills includes two main portions, the generation component of the bill and the delivery component of the bill. MCE is responsible for the generation component of the billing for our communities. We buy and build cleaner energy. And you can see that demonstrated on the left-hand portion of the slide. Now, PG&E is still involved in the process. They actually deliver that energy across their transmission and delivery uh, distribution lines. They do things like address service outages, they send monthly bills, but the end result for the customer is that they have a choice of where their energy is coming from. So they can remain with MCE as their generation provider, or they can always opt out and return to pg and &E service. Uh, you know, as a community choice aggregation program, choice is in our namesake. It's something that we really value and the customer should have that choice when they are considering their energy options. So next slide, please. And just to give a little bit more background about community choice in California, uh, in 2002, there was Assembly Bill 117 that passed that allowed for community choice aggregation programs to exist. It's the type of agency that MCE is, and really at the core of what we do is to offer an opportunity for cities and counties to come together to offer folks a choice of their electric provider and the source of their electricity. 
Again, we are a joint powers authority, similar to a waste district um, or a water district. And a JPA is helpful with, within the context of energy because it allows for communities to combine resources to procure new cost-effective clean energy that is locally controlled by a board of elected officials. MCE was the first community choice program in the state of California. We started in Marin in 2008 and launched service to customers in 2010. And now 13 years later here in 2023, we serve 580,000 customer accounts across four different counties, which equates to about 1.5 million residents and businesses, all receiving their electric generation from MCE. And we have three investment grade credit ratings, and we were the first uh, CCA in the state of California to achieve that. Uh, and if we could cycle back to the previous slide just real quickly, um, as you can see, we were the first CCA, but certainly not the last. This is a movement that's grown across the state of California with hundreds of cities and counties now participating from Humboldt County to San Diego. There's 24 active CCAs throughout the state serving 11 million customers in the state of California. So it's a model that's grown quite a bit since we started in 2010. Next slide, please. Uh, here's just a quick map of our service area. As you can see in Solano County, we serve the communities of Fairfield, Benicia, Vallejo, and the unincorporated portions of the county. In total, within Solano County, we serve about 98,000 customers. Um, and we typically see about an 87% participation rate in MCE services, meaning that when all of these communities were enrolled, about 13% of those customers in total opted out of MCE and 87 have remained with MCE service. Next slide, please. Now, one thing that all CCAs have in common is our governance structure. Uh, all CCAs report to and are regulated by the same state agencies that PG&E is regulated by, including the California Public Utilities Commission and the California Energy Commission. But the difference with CCAs is that we have a locally controlled board of elected officials. And you can see that here uh, with MCE's board. So the way that this works is each city, town, or county that MCE serves appoints an elected official to represent their community and our board meets monthly at public meetings to determine policy, uh, rates, customer programs on behalf of their communities. The benefit of this structure is that it allows for transparency in rate setting and customer program implementation to best fit community needs. So in other words, we are required to meet state regulations, but we are also subject to your local control as a community. And Vacaville, if they chose to join MCE, would have the opportunity to appoint somebody to our board of directors. As you can see here in Solano County, uh, Supervisor John Vasquez is one of our uh, board members. He served on the board since 2020 when unincorporated Solano came on board. And uh, in neighboring Fairfield, Council Member Doris Panduro has served on our board of directors uh, for a year and a half now uh, as that city has enrolled in MCE service. Next slide, please. So, I wanted to be very clear this evening about what MCE rates entail and what they do not entail. Uh, admittedly, you know, folks, when they're analyzing their billage month, it can be a little bit confusing, uh, but I don't think it needs to be. And I, I wanna help break that down a little bit more for you. So as mentioned, we set rates for electricity generation only. The only thing that MCE is providing is the generation services, really where the power is coming from how that power is being sourced and how it ultimately ends up at the homes of residents and businesses. 
We do not set rates for electric delivery. That's the transmission and distribution component of the grid. And we do not set rates for natural gas. Those are not things that MCE controls. And we know that things, those are both components of the bill that make up a large portion of what folks pay for their utility bills each month. So what we are responsible, responsible again for is that electric generation. And with MCE governed as a joint powers authority, communities gain more control over their electricity generation for their communities in a way that they do not otherwise have without a CCA in place. Uh, MCE, MCE's rates are typically set once a year, and these meetings take place in a public forum. And additionally, all rates are made publicly available with a 30-day review and comment period before they're actually decided upon by our board. So again, transparency by local elected officials in the rate setting process is something that we really value at MCE, and I think is a, a chief benefit of the CCA model. Next slide, please. So really the power of MCE is our ability to reinvest in our local communities. Since 2010, we've eliminated over 700,000 metric tons of carbon emissions from the atmosphere. And just for scale, that's the equivalent of the emissions produced from consuming 1.6 million barrels of crude oil. So a pretty, a pretty incredible number. Uh, we've invested over $214 million in the 37 member communities that we serve. That's through uh, the different rebates and customer programs that we're able to offer. Uh, we have rebates for electric vehicle charging infrastructure, for energy efficiency upgrades that commercial properties can take advantage of, uh, all things that are extended to uh, our member communities. And last but not least, we've created uh, and supported about 2.8 million labor hours uh, through our clean energy um, you know, building of new infrastructure. Uh, all projects built in MCE service area require 50% local hire and prevailing wage. And all projects over a megawatt in size are also built with union labor. Next slide. So I did want to highlight the steps to, uh, that are required to join MCE. The first step is for the city to submit two forms to PG&E. These are non-binding agreements. They're not a commitment to join MCE. The intent really is to notify PG&E that a new community is considering joining a CCA. Uh, and for MCE to begin the process of analyzing the technical data associated with serving customers in your community. So that process has actually been completed at this point. Again, these are non-binding forms, not a commitment to join MCE, uh, but those have been signed by the Vacaville city manager with guidance from the city attorney. Um, so that's one step in the process that's already taken place. The next step in the process would be to pass an ordinance to join MCE. And for us to be able to submit our formal uh, community inclusion plans to the state of California, uh, our goal at MCE for any community that wants to join in 2023 is to have a second reading and pass an ordinance by the end of June in this year. So that would be the next uh, milestone for the city council to consider if they wanted to move forward with MCE. Um, again, there are 37 different communities that have gone through this process. So at any point, if you have questions, you know, we're happy to uh, work with you on what that would look like and provide staff reports from some of those communities that we've worked with already. Um, and then from there, after the ordinance is passed, uh, the mayor would sign the signature page of MCE's Joint Powers Authority. From there is really kind of where the, the heavy lifting on MCE's end takes place. That's when we do our technical analysis with a third-party consultant uh, who really 
analyzes how we would best meet the energy needs of the community. You know, what are the new resources we would need to contract with? Um, how much demand you actually have as a community? That information would be presented to our board of directors, again, that locally controlled board, um, typically in October or November of the year, and they would be able to review that technical analysis and say, yes, you know, we wanna move forward with this. At that point, we would submit a new community inclusion plan to the California Public Utilities Commission, and typically they get back to us um, in the spring of the following year. So the CPUC would likely notify MCE um, about our plan and whether or not it's been approved or not in March or April of 24, which would allow the city of Vacaville to join MCE and begin enrolling customers in the spring of 2025. So again, there's no cost to join MCE. There's no tax dollars associated with this process, uh, but these are the steps to join. And uh, I would just say that if there are any questions from the city council, um, we're always available for you know, outreach and, and questions as well. Uh, again, we're a local public agency, so all of our information is accessible online, uh, members of the community as well. But with that, I'll just say thank you and see if there's any questions this evening and really appreciate the opportunity to present here. Thank you for that. And there are questions, so Council Member Roberts. Yeah, a few questions. Uh, I'm fairly passionate about renewable energy and uh, I mean, drive electric car, I have a bunch of solar on my roof. Uh, uh, one of the issues I also have is, uh, yeah, current rates are outrageous, especially with PG&E, because electricity is about four times to twice as much as going over SMUD in Sacramento. Is where I work, yeah, I charge my car, costs like seven bucks out there, but $20 out here. Um, how, do, how do your energy production rates compare to current PG&E rates? Because I know the transmission and utilities and gas, those will stay with PG&E, but for production, what is? Sure. Yeah, total, total cost of bill for the average customer is running at about a percent cheaper than PG&E right now with our standard service. We don't always claim to be cheaper than PG&E. That's not something that we, we claim to do. We're subject to the same market conditions that PG&E is with procuring that energy. So we have been about cheaper, cheaper than PG&E, about 50% of our time on operation, uh, and currently about a percent cheaper, but not something that we always, always claim. And then uh, for those folks that do have solar, how do you guys process net energy metering and usage? Yeah, great question. So we, we do have our own net energy metering tariff. And for those that are not as familiar with the terminology, it's basically the way that solar customers are compensated for their excess generation. You know, in the event that you have solar panels on your home and they are um, maybe overproducing in the summer months and creating more energy than you can consume on site, NEM is really kind of a balancing mechanism that those customers are compensated on an annual basis um, based on what they used and what they um, exported back to the electric grid. So we do have our own tariff. Um, I will say right now that uh, our compensation structure is about twice the wholesale rate, so which is two times what PG&E pays on their annual cash outs. Um, and happy to provide any additional information about the tariff to you. Um, you know, it is admittedly a complicated topic the way that, you know, energy metering works, but happy to support with any further questions you might have. Yeah. So do you guys do like an annual true up or do you guys do monthly? I know PG&E is trying to go monthly, which 
greatly disservices the customers. We do have a monthly model, so it's it's um, those 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 distribution charges are set on a monthly basis, and the customer is cashed out at the end of the year, uh, typically in April. And there is a new proceeding um, from the Public Utilities Commission, like more colloquially known as NEM 3.0, um, which is encouraging the investor-owned utilities to move to that monthly model as well. Um, so that's not something that MCE has control of necessarily, but mm -hmm. you know, did want to call that out. So I know that going to the monthly model will, like particularly me, I know most people with solar will cost them significantly more a year, because like right now, say my system's only producing 50% of energy coverage, whereas during the summer or from May till like August September. I'm producing two or three hundred percent, and the amount that you're buying back doesn't compensate for the underproduction during those months. But if you go to annual true up, I may overproduce a hundred percent, but so I'll be paying my solar payment for my lease or my monthly payment to sure. pay off the solar and increase. Uh, for example, like the first year I had solar, I went from paying a couple hundred dollars a month, three or four hundred dollars a month, to having a electric bill of sixty dollars for entire year, entire year, where that wouldn't be true with a month to month. Uh, I know they are allowed some people. I think there's an opt out in M three point where you can stay in M two if you kind of grandfathered in that way. Before and it's it's like an April fifteenth date. Yeah. yeah. So for the would that grandfather carry into if we did switch over to MCE as production or because we'd be changing providers, would that change the, the NEM status for those that already have solar? You know, I haven't been asked that question before and I'm happy to provide some more guidance. Um, okay. I don't know off the top of my head. Um, I will say that we govern, our board governs our own NEM tariff. So the compensation rates by which folks are paid out yeah. and cashed out annually is something that MCE has control over. But I think yeah. Jenna might have some more info on this. Yeah, I just wanted to add a little bit more information. So MCE's NEM policy has always been on a month-to-month -month basis. Mm -hmm. So since we started, it's always been month-to-month, -month, which is different. Um, the way that we work with customers is that the intent of the month-to-month -month policy is that what you're talking about during the summer when you are accruing all of those credits, they'd stay on your bill. Right, so let's say you're transitioning from summer into fall, you're not generating quite as much, but you're also not using quite as much yet. So your credits from the summer are going to cover those fall months. And the intent is that your balance over the course of the year is similar, even though in like January, February, right now, you would be paying a larger bill, your credits for the summer are going to be a higher amount. So the intent really is that it nets over the entire period of time. I kind of get that, but for a lot of people that do have decent systems and are, and own their systems, it's it it doesn't balance out. I've I've done the math on my own because yeah, when Public Utilities Commission comes out and says, "Hey, we're doing this," I was like, "Yeah, granted, you're you're not gonna be stuck with like yeah, at the end of the true up, I may have like a couple hundred dollars, a thousand dollars. I do have to fork out at one time versus eighty dollars, ninety dollars here, but in the end, the month to month." costs more at the end of the year than doing an annual true up. So that's the thing I'm concerned about. I know a lot of people that own solar are 
if they're grandfathered in already and then we do switch over, does that reset it? And where we're stuck with a month to month uh, versus the NEM 2.0 from previously. So your, your solar agreement, your interconnection agreement is with PG&E. Mm -hmm. So if you were to switch to become an MCE customer, your interconnection agreement doesn't change for which NEM tariff you're on. Um, but if you did switch to MCE, you would be moved to that monthly um, payment system because that is how MCE operates. So we do have customers that really benefit from that monthly system because they may be paying $1,000, $2,000 at the end of the year and they really can't afford that. So they prefer those smaller monthly charges. But we have other customers who prefer to have that annual true up and we just let them know, hey, if you, if you want to do that, you got to stick with PG&E. So it's just a matter of how you prefer to have Who makes bill. those decisions? Is it the board that can change whether it's annual or monthly? <laughs> no. So those decisions... So well, yes. So MCE's NEM policy is a monthly policy. So if we decided to change the way that that policy operated, that would be our board of directors. Okay. But every individual gets to make the choice on how they want their personal account to be managed. If they want to stay with PG&E and, and have yeah. that true up, or if they want to stay with MCE and have that monthly billing. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, for people like myself, I know other people that have solar that, are, that want the renewable energy source that really want to support it, but in the end may cost us a lot more a year to do that. Uh, makes it a very difficult decision because, yeah, while well, I fully support like what you guys do, it's awesome, but financially it may impact a lot of people adversely. Yeah, we, we do find that most of our solar customers like the monthly billing, but definitely, completely, we, we most of our calls are solar customers helping explain, so totally understand. Appreciate the answers. Thank you. Councilmember Silva. Um, thank you, uh, Councilmember Roberts, for the questions. Um, only one I want to add to those is uh, the concept of opting out. So if this goes through, um, at what point, like with the suggested timeline, at what point, uh, uh, can you please explain that timeline? Definitely. Yeah, so we, first off, I'll start by saying that we're regulated by the California Public Utilities Commission. We are required to send four different pieces of collateral, collateral notifying people of their change to MCE. So typically those take place 60 days before enrollment and 60 days post enrollment. So um, I'll use the city of Fairfield as an example. Folks enrolled in April 2021, 2022. And so those notifications started in February, 60 days. So there's two sent before that and two after. All of those notifications mention uh, the choice that people have about their energy and how they can opt out. Um, it also includes information about public workshops that we're hosting. We had, for our previous enrollment, about seven community workshops where folks could drop in and ask questions about MCE. Uh, but the short answer is that it's um, a 120-day period where folks can opt out for free and return to MC, return to PG&E service. Uh, after that, there is a $5 administrative fee to return to PG&E once that 120-day window passes. And then, um, and I'm sorry, uh, the timeline, um, sorry. So the, now it's, uh, I think it's the, the final slide. Yeah, that one. Oh, yeah, you're right. Um, so the when when would that time period start? I'm sorry, when uh, when it would be effective? Yeah, not 
included on this slide. This is more for the, the steps to join, but that process would begin assuming that you all move forward with this um, in February of 25. And then uh, the, so what would you be offering the backable residents as far as the workshops? So, uh, yeah. so I heard you say the four uh, correspondence, like get some letters, postcards, and then the seven work. Is that what you guys are, would commit to? Yeah, so me in, in my role and, and Jenna's role on the community engagement team, we craft dedicated community outreach plans for any new community that's considering joining. And so um, we work with staff and community leaders to identify what are the forums that MCE can engage with, whether that's local business associations, local chambers of commerce, local community-based organizations, who are really the leaders in the community that can help us get the word out, and we implement that plan from there. So it could be anything from tabling at farmer's markets to speaking at community town halls, uh, doing online workshops. We, I will say we're also hiring for a bilingual community development manager for Spanish-speaking needs as well. So that's something that we'd be able to include. Um, it's really up to the city. I think we do the heavy lifting on our end to get ourselves out there, but we um, we appreciate any guidance that, that you all would have about groups that would make sense for us to connect with. And then, um, thank you. Uh, and then the other question I have is, the uh, you, you mentioned that the board, can you clarify about the rates? Um, so I know Council Member Roberts was asking uh, about different rates, but. How is it that the, the board, uh, the elected representatives, how, what is their scope or scale of influence on the rates? How would, yeah, and what, how would that process work? Or how does, does that process work? They approve the rates on the generation side of things. So it typically comes at recommendation of staff. Um, you know, these are public meetings, so they receive a staff report and presentation from our staff um, explaining what the proposed rate changes would be. Um, there's, distinct subcommittees of our board. So there's an executive committee and a technical committee. Typically, when we're doing a rate change, um, which really only takes place about once a year, if at all, um, it goes to our technical or executive committee first. That recommendation is passed to the full board. Um, once the executive committee makes a recommendation on rates, there's a 30-day review period where everything is posted publicly. And we're required to notice customers as well about any rate changes that are taking place. That's an annual process? Uh, it, it depends, yeah. I mean, we, we typically only set them once a year. It's never been more than once a year. Um, whereas with, with PG&E, those are set you know, multiple different times throughout the year. And so I think that's one of the benefits of the CCA model. But yes, once, once a year. Thank you. There's a lot of lights up here, so we may be standing there for a while. Sure. Vice Mayor White. That over all 37 communities or whatever, it's not each one has their own meeting. You have one rate for the whole shebang. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. And I will say that I know a lot of people who have been interested in MCAE for quite a while. It did come before the council four years ago when I don't think anyone was on here then because we're all pretty new council members. Um, and I did talk with a person from Benicia just last night, and he just said that the opt-out program was the issue that came up before when we did it. But he said, since they started in 2015, their participation has been really steady. They have over 80% to start with, 
and they've always had 80%. So that told me that people are pretty happy with the way things are going um, with MTE. And I, and I like the opt-out program better than the opt-in, so that wasn't an issue for me. But I do have a question for you. Because you have been building, you know, starting with Benicia and then you're adding more and then, you know, Fairfield, Vallejo, and, and then if we say yes, we would be in the pipeline not until 2025 is what you just said. Will you have enough bandwidth to serve all the communities that are signing in so that we still get green energy? You're not just giving us a different kind of energy than PG&E, you know, just a different name because the whole point is to have greener, cleaner energy, and how do you, how are you going to find the sources for generation of more and more people? Yeah, no, that's that's a great question. Um, the first part of that, I'll say that you know because we're regulated by the California Energy Commission and the CPUC, we would not be allowed to serve the city of Vacaville if we didn't have the procurement practices in place to be able to meet that demand for your community. On the clean energy side of things, we have what's called our Operational Integrated Resources Plan, which is a publicly available document. It outlines how we intend to get power to serve our communities and which sources of energy we're serving those communities. Um, that's a, a document that's posted annually. Right now, we forecast at a 10-year um, look ahead. And so our intent at MCE right now is to be 85 75, I'll clarify the number, I'm not totally sure off the top of my head. Uh, I believe it's 85% re renewable by 2029. And so these are things that we're already planning for long-term. How do we continue to identify clean energy within the state of California and beyond to serve our communities? And on one of those tables, it, can you pay a higher fee and get a 100% cleaner fee? And yeah, we have a product that, called- That each individual customer could decide to do that? Again, it's all about customer choice, right? Okay. So they, they can be with pg &E, they can receive MCE service, they can opt up to our 100% renewable option. It's called Deep Green. Um, it does cost on average about five or $6 more for the average residential customer. Um, and we see across our service area about a 2.2, 2.3 participation rate in that. Um, so it is an option that folks have if they wanna get that 100% renewable. Service. And the people that I have been talking to in a climate group, um, some of which who sent emails in supporting it as well, also said that they saw this as a choice for people who like the idea of solar but can't afford to have it at their house so that at least they felt like they would be doing something better for the environment rather than you know purchasing their power through PG&E. So I, I do feel like it does help some people who want to help but have a different way to do that. So thank you for coming tonight and your information. Thank you. Councilmember Richie. Thank you so much for coming. I'll, I'll try to keep it brief. There's a lot of great comments. Uh, Jason has a very deep knowledge of, of the subject. Um, this is great. Um, Deciding that we're here is an opportunity. I think the real thing is that this is choice. Uh, I'm, I'm not a subject expert on this, but I last, we, I think we met um, last year. I tried twice to bring this to the council, um, and we're glad we had the opportunity to meet, um, and we're here. So I'm glad that uh, this opportunity is a choice, um, and, and I, I think people need every opportunity to have clean energy, make the choice to either get traditional old, old power or something that's a combination of full green or you know 85%. 
But if it's a reduction to the bill, that's what I'm happy about. If, if it gives people a chance to save money, one thing I, I didn't get clarification on is, is there any adjustment for like low to moderate income? Or if you're handicapped, or if you have if you have disabilities, if you say if you're medically re retired or your disability is a VA, is there any reduction that you might get for your bill? There are a number of programs that are offered with that customer segment in mind. Um, at a state level, there's the California alternate rates for energy care, which gives folks about a 35% discount on their monthly billing. Regardless of CME or PG&E, that trend. Anybody can sign okay. up for that, correct. Um, for MCE-specific programs, during the pandemic, we knew that people were really struggling with, with paying their utility bills. And so um, we implemented, our board of directors implemented um, a program called MCE CARES Credit, which gave folks that were already on that state care program an additional $10 off um, on their monthly bills, which I believe ended up being about a $6 million investment uh, to help with low-income customers and their ability to pay bills. So our board has discretion to you know, design programs like that as well. We, we have, back when we have a large population of people that are 55 and over, and we're doing, we do some pretty good things to have a whole new community come in Green Tree to help that continue. And the Solana County is awesome. It has the highest per capita of retired military personnel in all of California. So there's, by default, we're gonna have a lot of people that are retired above 55 and probably have disabilities that are medically tied to their service. So I wanna make sure that our 55 and over that are not military and 55 and over that are military with disabilities will get a chance to have a little more break because the cost of living here is getting expensive. Councilmember Chapman. Great, thank you. Councilmember Stockton. Yes, thanks for the presentation. Um, <clears throat> great questions from my colleagues. Thank you very much. Um, how much of this power is actually going to be generated in Vacaville? And do you have any, like, do you have any solar farms here? Do you have any? Talk about that a little bit. Sure. So we have what's called a feed-in tariff program. It's a program that allows local developers to contract directly with MCE to sell us that energy at a fixed rate of return over a 20-year period. Um, to my knowledge, I don't think we have any projects in Vacaville at the moment. But you know, if there are developers that would be interested in, in partnering with us, certainly happy to, to have them. I think the best example that you all could reference uh, within Solano County is a project we have at Lake Herman in Benicia, uh, a fairly large scale solar development there that is um, enrolled in that feed-in tariff program. So across our service area, the four counties that we serve, we do have about 48, 48 megawatts of power um, directly in our service area that are taking, they're participating in that program. So. The Benicia one is probably your best bet um, if you want a reference point locally here in the county. Okay, and that's a solar farm. Do you, what about storage? Do you have battery storage facilities? We well? do. We, we have battery storage at both a local scale and a utility scale. Uh, it's a requirement of that feed-in tariff program that I described to have a battery storage component. Um, that on-site? On-site, yes. Um, and then we also have... Um, I believe it's a 75 megawatt project in Kern County in Bakersfield um, 
that's providing that you know dispatchable load. And for any members of the council that may not be as familiar with with this, um, the real benefit of battery technology is that in the state of California, we have all of this energy on the grid from solar, right? And when the sun is not shining, you know, we don't have a way to capture that energy. So I think a lot of the investments that we're seeing um, at a local level from agencies like MCE, as well as at a federal level, you know, with the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, you know, that, that sweeping climate legislation is enabling more battery storage. So I will say that uh, recently we received $500,000 in federal funding specifically for battery storage in our communities. So it's something that we are, are really interested in uh, continuing to build out. What, what type of batteries do you use, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah, typically lithium ion right now. Um, you know, I know that there are uh, some conversations about um, the saltwater technology as well, but not anything that our board has considered at this point. It's, it's typically lithium ion batteries. Councilmember Roberts. Yeah, sorry, I just heard another question uh, uh, from Councilmember Stockton's questions. Um, yeah, we have some potential like large scale battery uh, storage options coming in town. Um, would they be tapped into the MCE network um, because they are within city limits or? They certainly could be. I mean, there, there's nothing to preclude those developments from partnering with MCE. If, if they're building it, we'll, we'll buy it, you know, as part of our um, our purchasing and procurement strategy. Um, so yeah, I would say that that's, that's an open thing that could be considered. And I assume like your procurement energy strategy is fairly competitive, like to compared it to PG&E. So it'd be a feasible business model for them to adopt the MC or selling power back to MC. You know, I, I don't work in our procurement department. I'm not a procurement specialist. Um, I'm happy to provide some more information about that. Okay, but... I can just send you an email. Sure. Or something. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Um, energy is a very important subject. I think for everyone, cost is is a, is a factor. There's no doubt. Uh, looking more towards renewables is is responsible. Uh, but more importantly, in the moment, also, is just you have to have that along with a, st a stable source. Sun goes down. Storage is required. And I know that we're kind of in an evolution of energy of the future, especially with demands at the state level, putting mandates on communities and energy providers that does not yet exist. And so we're in that conundrum of driving towards um, a solution not yet completely uh, resolved, but I certainly commend your presentation so far. Um, it is all, it's always an interesting concept to consider um, options and choices. Choices sometimes lead to innovation and, and more of a competitive environment so I know, at least from my perspective, um, there's no doubt that there is a need for um, what it is that we're being asked to consider tonight. Uh, but with that, I want to open it up to the public for comment. So thank you. My name is Margie Stern, and I'm really glad you turned the heat up in here because I was wondering if you guys were trying to save energy um, well, I was freezing there and I was like, oh, maybe we really need this uh, project sooner than later because it was cold in here. Um, I also wanted to just make a comment about that most of this evening, most of the vocabulary that has been used tonight has been so foreign to me 
And I didn't understand like much of it at all. And so I just wanted to commend you guys for being up there and also for my late husband, Ernest Kimmy, for, for when he sat up here, for understanding what people are saying when they come up and talk about all these projects. Cause I was just sitting there. I have absolutely no idea all this financial stuff. So I just wanted to say thank you so much because you guys are awesome and you rock with all of that. So I just wanted to come up here to say I support this project with looking into the comments that you had, um, Councilman Roberts, about solar and cost and true up and, and end of the year. So I'm really interested in finding out about that. But I think that we know that it's um, clear from his, histor uh, existing historic data that we're facing a climate crisis and from wildfires, intensity, storms, and droughts, and we all wanna leave a sustainable planet for our children. So I think that looking into this as a choice and to help Vacaville become part of the solution, uh, when we have Benicia, Vallejo, um, Fairfield, and unincorporated areas all having signed up, Vacaville needs to kind of look into this, and it reminds me a little bit of when I before any of you guys were here, when I changed the chicken law in, in Vacaville so that people could have chickens in the backyard. And every other city in Solano County, except Vacaville, had a law for that. And so here we are again. We're the last one. So let's do it. <laughs> Thank you. Three, three chickens. Oh, yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. It took us two years to do it. And you know what? The back of a reporter has a rooster as the logo. Oh. Right? Thank you. Just have a quick question. So, Councilman Roberts, on, on your concern about the true up, you know, so, so I have solar panels. The panel stopped working. There was an issue. And SunPower is like, not very customer friendly right now. I don't know why, but it took eight months for them to fix it. So my true up was like $1,200, but I didn't have to pay it all at once. So I could, here's my question. So with MCE, um, say someone for whatever the reason has this horrible true up bill and say that can, can they avoid it by switching back to PG&E? That, that's what I'm wondering. So when I see the bill, I might think, do to rate the MCE rate and then whatever PG&E's charging. I just like, what's, what's, how's that gonna look like on my bill? But so I'm, I'm just curious about the switching between providers. Can, can a customer kind of get away from an MCE bill and, and jump to PG&E and vice versa? Anyway, that's it. Thank you. One else before I close public comment. All right, seeing none, I'll close public comment on this item. Um, I think you've heard a lot of, from everyone here, maybe in some multiple times. I know this is to receive the presentation. That also is for staff direction. Is there anything else that is needed in this, Mr. City Manager? Thank you, Mr. Mayor. Well, as uh, one of the slides indicated that if the city is uh, interested in pursuing this enrolling, there you go, um, it does require the council to pass a resolution and ordinance. Two thousand twenty-five. 
So we would need direct, if you're interested in doing that, we would need direction from you all to begin that process so that we can come back with the necessary um, materials for you to officially vote on that. Sorry about that. The item doesn't say anything other than direction. There's no motion in this, but. No, so we can simply just get a, a group consensus that you'd like us to come back with this, and that will be, you know, sufficient to, for us to go ahead and move forward with bringing it back on a, um, another request with an official action by the council. And uh, with that, uh, Councilmember Silva. When would the outreach be done before the ordinance or? Can you clarify the question what you mean by outreach? The, when, before we make an ordinance, is MC going to be educating the public on what it is, or is that something that's on us as city council members? That takes place later in the process. We typically don't do outreach until um, you know, that enrollment date of 2025, so not something that we would be doing. Uh, if I could just ask a clarification question. Uh, so, Mr. Khan, um, we do this ordinance to say let's go to the next step that you have there on your list. Um, to address the councilman's concern about public outreach, assuming we then go through all the outreach and everything and we hear back that it's not something that, you know, is, is favored by the council, by us adopting that ordinance, does that mean that we're obligated to finish through and complete it? Or, because I think that's what you're getting at, is you want to hear from the public first before you make that final commitment. Is that correct? So I guess, if you could clarify, if we adopt an ordinance that says we we're interested, we want to go forward with the process, but then along that public hearing process or the outreach process, they hear some not favorable you know, feedback and say, we'd like to, to halt this. Are we able to do that? And you mean after that second reading of the ordinance and the yes. ordinance is passed. Um, Jenna, I'm not sure off the top of my head, do you know? Um, yeah, so two things here. Um, no, once the second reading has passed, you have made the decision to commit. Um, if you decide not to move forward with the second reading, then that, that's totally fine. So if you did a first reading and decided, you know, we got public comment, we feel like we need to hold off either if that's like we want to wait and come back to this in a month or we have just decided we're going to table it for this year both of those are fine that's totally up to you um i'll just also add that we will occasionally support outreach efforts so for example if you all wanted to advertise to your community a um, community meeting about mce and invite folks to come for a special meeting to city hall or any other facility in your jurisdiction, um, we would be happy to come and speak, but we won't necessarily facilitate the actual like outreach with the public to get them to come and attend, but we would be happy to come and speak to the public for you. Councilmember Chapman. Um, I was just reading the, uh, the yellow. There's no cost in 2023. So we don't make it by December, 31st, you're going to begin implementing a charge for individuals expressing interest, not public in, uh, agencies. 
know, and apologies, that's not the most clear verbiage. Um, there's not a cost to join MCE in general. So the, the date in 2023, I think, is, is less relevant there. So just to be clear. Okay, so that's insignificant. Thank you. Thank you. Um, based on this comment, I think the direction really is less there's additional information that anyone wants to provide is, is for staff to move forward. And, uh, but it would be beneficial to potentially have a public meeting and outreach so that there is more conversation and discussion sooner rather than later. And then clearly based upon that, uh, maybe providing more feedback so that as, as that goes through the process, we go through the ordinance, which does require first and second, so that there is a due diligence. Um, I can imagine that some, some don't like to have to opt out of something. They would rather opt in. And so some of this community outreach, one of the challenges that the council often faces is poor communication. And so I would just suggest that we direct staff a, to have a, a robust outreach to the, to the community on where we're going from here in all our forms of advertisement and then move towards um, a resolution before June 30th. Does that sound good? If you want to say so. And I would just say, Mayor Carley, if, if I may, um, I wanted to apologize for, for that comment. I think it's, I, I wasn't totally clear. It's not something that MCD would do proactively on our own, but to Jenna's point, if the city wants to do that, of course we would partner in that. To, the, to your point is, is that you would make, you would avail yourself for uh, anything that we would do. So the community engagement, people can ask questions just like we have. Obviously this is recorded so more people can actually watch it. Good questions sometimes make a meeting go long. It also allows for due diligence for a, a discerning public that wants to know and have answers. Energy is very important. So this is, this could have real potential for Vacaville, but we just want to make sure that we're doing what's best for the community. So thank you. Good. Thank you. And with that, um, we're going to move on to item 9D. Mr. Mayor, members of the council, this next item is um, related to uh, the selection of your commissioners for both our planning commission, Parks and Rec Commission. Um, this is uh, a process that we initiated last year. And so it's once again that time of year. And so to lead you through that, um, our city clerk, Michelle Thornbrew, will walk you through the process for that. Thank you, Mr. City Manager, Mayor, Vice Mayor, and Council. As you know, the City Council or the City has two commissions, the Parks and Rec and Planning Commission, which have staggered two-year terms. The terms for commissioners in appointed by Council Representatives in Districts 1, 3, and 5 are expiring on March 31st. In accordance with the city's commission appointment policy, we opened the application period for residents interested in serving on a city commission on December 20th, and the application period was open for 30 days, closing on January 20th. Uh, the applications received have been reviewed, and tonight, council members representing districts one, three, and five have proposed nomina nominations for the mayor and council's consideration and ratification. And with that, I will hand it back over to Mayor Carley to let the council provide information on their nominees. Thank you. So um, just slightly different than the prior um, way, which was during COVID. Um, what I would like to do is, is just go down and, and ask the, the, the district 
council members to introduce their nomination or their nominations so that we can uh, just we'll start with district one we'll go district three and district five and uh, if you could just um, introduce your nomination for the planning commission then also the parks and recreation commission so i'll turn this over to council member stockton to do that thank you mr Mayor. Um, one uh, i'm excited to retain the services of planning commissioner chair klein uh, he's served um, for me for the last, uh, I believe, year and a half, year, um, and has done uh, a great job leading that commission. And so I'm gonna retain his services there. And for our Parks and Rec Commission for District One, I'm also going to retain Commissioner Sean McMahon. He's done an excellent um, job, works well with the group, and I look forward to him continuing to look out for the interest of the people in District One. All right, with that, I'm gonna move on to Councilmember Silva. All right, so for Parks and Recreation, uh, I'd like to continue, I'd like to nominate and um, uh, allow, uh, request the council mayor and council support, Danielle Shea. She's a local educator, um, a mother of uh, some beautiful children. And uh, I think uh, her voice is an added representation of uh, not just uh, all kids, um, but particularly kids with special uh, special needs, unique unique abilities, and uh, I think she brings a unique perspective to our parks and recreation uh, that's very open to the, the diversity that we have throughout this town. Uh, for our planning commission, I'd like to nominate Noel Vargas. Uh, he as well uh, served uh, our city uh, the past year. Uh, been very dedicated in uh, making sure he stays on top of the information and uh, advocating uh, for things as well. Uh, he does not live in District 3. However, um, having to get to know uh, Mr. Vargas, uh, growing up in winters and growing up um, around some of our low-income areas, I think uh, some of the unique, the unique uh, experiences uh, and issues that uh, pertain to planning, uh, that pertain to families um, that will live in some of our, our low-income areas, uh, I, I feel that uh, his voice and perspective is is needed and valuable uh, as we as he continues to serve the city of Vacaville. Uh, and they're not able to be here because I want them to be with their family tonight. So. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, Councilmember Roberts. Yeah, um, I'm back uh, for Parks and Recreation. Uh, I'd like to reappoint uh, Mary Vasquez, been the chair of the Parks and Rec Commission last year, this last year. Um, then for Planning Commission, I'd like to appoint Ashley Banta. Um, she is, actually resides outside the district, but she does have some education in civil engineering, uh, works very closely with low-income and houseless communities, worked closely with crew uh, from the police department. And just her experience and knowledge of low-income housing, how to navigate that and the needs of the community, uh, I think she'd be an excellent voice on the Planning Commission. And they're you. both here. Paid. Great. Great. Thank you. And with that, I'd like to um, open it up for a council discussion if there's any comments from the council. And before I will then open it up to both the public, but also members of the, the commissions that are potentially being reappointed and also being selected potentially for the first time. So anyone on the council want to make any other comments? I see Vice Mayor Wiley. I would just say I'm very happy with the people who were appointed. Uh, may 
good choices because they have a good service record. And I also want to say that I was really happy to see so many applications. I mean, two people applied from District 6, even though District 6 doesn't have a spot right now, but they were considered by everyone. So I just think it's great. I don't know exactly how many applications we had, but we had a, a good number of applications. So we have people interested in serving. So I appreciate everyone who wanted to be involved. And I thank everyone who has served and will continue to serve. Thank you. Uh, seeing no other lights up here, I'm gonna open it up for anyone in the public who wants to comment, but also for those of you who are here and uh, are on the commission and want, want to speak and address this council, uh, I will open it up for you now. She beat you too. Yeah, be used to talking for Ashley. Well, uh, good evening. Uh, my name is Ashley Banta, and I've met everyone, almost everyone here. Um, I do not live in District 5. I do live in District 2, actually. Um, but I did live, and I've lived in District 3 at once as well. I've lived here in Vacaville for four years. And like Jason Roberts said, I believe I have a unique perspective coming from low-income, um, generational family, low-income, generational poverty, and navigating how to get out of that system um, is a unique perspective that I bring to this. And I, like you said, I do have an educational background in civil engineering and my lived experience that I've shared with some of you has pushed me into the human services and the helping realm. And I feel like this is a perfect place to start to get into the community and to kind of blend the two, the two fields, the engineering and the planning and the, the homelessness, the low income and the all the things that come with that, the two of them together. So I thank you for your nomination and I. Thank you. Oh, now you're going to change. Right. <laughs> you don't have to use all your time, but just come up and. And well, this is weird being on this side again. Um, and it's actually really bright and it is, it has been pretty cold. Um, hi everyone. Thank you um, for the nomination or um, recommendation, uh, Council Member Roberts. Um, looking forward to continuing on Parks and Recreation Commission, I'm currently serving as chair and hopefully doing a good job facilitating um, you know, meetings that folks feel confident and comfortable sharing um, their opinions and their experiences um, that help better guide um, the Parks and Rec team and staff. Um, I really appreciate working with the Parks and Recreation um, Department um, and really looking forward to continue um, serving on the commission under um, Director Hubbard's um, guidance. So looking forward to that and the team and um, just thank you for the nomination and for the consideration and hopefully the reappointment um, and just appreciate um, working with all of you as well. I know I've reached out to you all um, uh, randomly here and there when parks and rec issues come up in your districts and so i'm um, just looking forward to continuing working with you all thank you thank you else being none i will close public comment and bring it back to the council um, i've had the opportunity to uh, watch this process clearly seeing the process from the the prior when the staggering started this council had some discussions uh, at, a, at a more recent council meeting as far as to understanding some of what this process is since we've gone to districts and having representation. And notably, you're a Vacaville resident, whether you're in a district from appointment. The key is, is the, uh, 
the council being able to participate in the process of identifying what's good for Vacaville. At the same time, our appointees, um, they serve the entire community. At the same time, they also can focus on individual districts so that we have both the macro and the micro view and can be informed as a council. And that's the benefit of having the two commissions that we have. And so it's been a pleasure to walk through this path and discussing some of these with, with members of the council and reviewing a lot of candidates. Uh, the way it works, if someone does not know, the, the existing list is good for six months in case there needs to be an appointment. That's never the anticipation, but for those who applied, thank you. And, uh, and with that, I will accept the nominations as presented tonight. And to not uh, delay the, the process, I simply, with both the, the Parks and Recs Commission and the Planning Commission, based, unless there's any other decision that wants to do it otherwise, simply to, by simple motion, ratify these appointments. So with that, I am just gonna ask all in favor, say aye. Aye. Opposed? Seeing none, congratulations to our reappointments and to our new member, Ashley Bonta. Appreciate you joining. You're the newest member, so you have a lot to, uh, to learn. But one thing that is important that some people do not know, you undersold yourself for, with your prior experience. And that information simply was attached to this, uh, to this agenda item. So you have a lot of experience and perspective to gain, and I, for one, have appreciated getting to know you. So thank you. And with that, we'll move on to the next item. Thank you, Mr. Mayor, members of the council. This next item is a presentation from our Parks and Rec Department, um, giving you an update on the Parks and Recreation Commission's um, ranking of the top five priorities uh, from the Parks and Rec Master Plan. And as our Parks and Rec Director, Mr. Hubbard, and his assistant, um, Nemo, join us to get their presentation set up, uh, I will just give a quick background that this is a, a kind of a challenge that I um, gave to Mr. Hubbard earlier on, uh, shortly after we approved the Parks and Rec Master Plan. Um, that was a significant uh, effort that was completed uh, with their guidance and direction and certainly with input from uh, the Parks and Rec Commission and then ultimately approved by this count or the prior council. Um, but to ensure that this document, this very important document, did not just sit on the shelf. We wanted to make sure that we began taking the necessary steps to implement it. And so I think what um, this exercise did is actually gave them an opportunity to evaluate um, all the materials that have been put into it and some of the other documents that our team over there will um, give you some more background on and then how they came up with the recommendation before you tonight so that as we begin the new fiscal year, uh, coming up shortly, um, council will have some, you know, good information on where um, our next move is. And so, with that, I'll turn it over to Parks and Rec Director, uh, Mr. Hubbard. Uh, good evening, Mayor, Vice Mayor, and City Council. I probably should have given Aaron my talking points because he covered them all <laughs> in his introduction. So, I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, the last time I was here, it's been a while. Um, I was asking the City Council to approve the Park and Rec Master Plan. Uh, and you did that in 2021. We've sub subsequently been working with our Park and Rec Commission um, to get to this point. Um, so we're going to, Nemo's gonna take the lead and we're gonna run through the process that we've gone through in addition to the projects that um, are contained in the Park and Rec Master Plan. So I will turn it over to Nemo. 
Good evening, Mayor, Vice Mayor, uh, Council Members. Good to be back. Um, for those of you who I haven't met, uh, my name is Nemo Gonzalez. I'm a park planner. Uh, uh, I don't know if you can tell, but uh, it's a requisite that you have this uh, haircut <laughs> if you work for this department. Um, the presentation is kind of long, so I'm going to get started. Uh, uh, the purpose of uh, our presentation tonight is uh, like uh, a city manager and, and Director Hubbard have indicated, it's just a prioritization of uh, some of our park projects that are uh, uh, outlined in the Park and Rec Master Plan. And with that, uh, the first slide here is a project timeline. Uh, so staff's approach for tonight's presentation was to rely on the nearly 10 years of uh, community outreach conducted from 2011 to 2021. This outreach was in preparation for two documents that helped guide the city of Vacaville's evolving park and recreation needs. And those documents are the uh, recreation needs assessment published in May of 2013 and the park and rec master plan published in April of 2021. Now, these documents have uh, several overlapping community requests and some of those are uh, trails, bikeways, gymnasiums, multi-use rec center, linear fields, dog parks, and additional pool facilities. Uh, some of these other documents uh, inform uh, the Park and Rec Master Plan. For instance, the rec uh, facility assessment was uh, conducted by the same consultant that prepared the Park and Rec Master Plan. So those were two concurrent efforts, but the uh, outcome of the rec facility assessment was actually taken into account when the Park and Rec Master Plan was published. So uh, this presentation was previously brought to the Park and Rec Commission twice, once uh, as a list of 10 top projects that the uh, department uh, identified. And then we were subsequently asked to bring back the top five once they had ranked uh, those top five to a subsequent special meeting. And so these are the results of that, uh, that ranking effort. And with that, we're gonna jump right into the projects. Uh, the Davis Street Gymnasium is also often referred to as a skate center. It's located on Davis Street. Uh, within a commercial center and is adjacent to movie theater, gas station, coffee shops, restaurants, and I-80. It's a privately owned building and a former redevelopment agency initially contracted with the property owner and that agreement was transferred to the successor agency once the redevelopment agency was dissolved. Uh, it's important to note that the successor agency is a separate legal entity from the city. Some of the bullet points uh, of the agreement with the property owner include uh, the city subleases one of the three pods. Uh, the sublease expires in September of 2025. The agreement gives the city the option to buy uh, the leased pod, so the one that's uh, up in red. The agreement also gives the city the option to buy the entire facility. Uh, the two privately operated pods run ice hockey and ice uh, skate programs. And the city operated pod runs gymnastics, basketball, volleyball, and hosts private birthday parties. Now, this is a, a fairly, uh, I would say that the programs that are run out of this facility are fairly popular. Uh, the total number of participants for gymnastics in 2022 
uh, technically it's only 11 months of 2022 were 7,478. And that includes uh, 3,529 for program and 3,949 for open gym. The number of participants for basketball in 2022 were 523 with 99 on a wait list. And the total number of participants in volleyball for 2022 were 555 with 51 on the wait list. So essentially that indicates that we don't have enough facility to service all of those uh, on the wait list. So what's next for Davis Street? Uh, we have just over two years uh, to do one of the following options, and that is either to renegotiate the sublease, uh, negotiate one of our purchase options, or leave the facility for a new uh, facility to host those uh, existing programs. Our next park uh, or facility uh, is in Nelson Park. It's a community park that is uh, originally master planned in, 19, in the 80s. I believe it was constructed in 1990 uh, to have the following uh, 108 parking stalls, play structures, informal trails, benches, and two lighted softball fields. Uh, the Nelson Park Master Plan was revised in 2019 and brought to the Park and Recre uh, Recreation Commission where it was recommended with the following proposed amenities, uh, 51 additional parking stalls, an inclusive playground, water play, mini ball field, fitness station, enhanced entry, picnic shade structure, and three uh, pickleball courts. One of the things that I haven't talked about previously, but uh, it just popped in my head earlier today is the fact that um, I've only been in my role for about a year, and uh, a lot of that has been reading uh, previous documents. And the city historically had a, uh, a joint use agreement with the schools here in Vacaville. And so uh, you'll find a lot of the parks that are adjacent to existing schools often shared facilities with those schools. Uh, and uh, schools, uh, you know, because of the times, have uh, chosen to... Uh, fence their facilities off and so some of the things that have historically been available to residents are no longer um, and so oftentimes for instance at Meadowlands you'll find that the uh, loop was never completed because previously you had access to the school now uh, we're finalizing that project uh, with some measure m funds but this is also one of those um, um, park sites that uh, uh, is adjacent to a school and the original master plan accounted for a third uh, softball field but that softball field went into the school property but the school property is no longer interested in pursuing that hence our effort to revise a master plan uh, at the january 6 2021 park and rec uh, commission meeting the revised master plan was recommended to go to council for approval and because of extraneous factors, uh, this has not occurred yet, but it will happen early in 2023. Um, our department is currently working with our design consultant uh, on a presentation and a phasing construction plan. Our third project is the uh, sports field complex. Uh, the Park and Rec Commission, uh, I apologize, the Park and Rec Department commissioned a, a sports field pro forma. It's a type of feasibility study uh, in 2019. And some of the areas explored in that uh, pro forma were market demand, cost and space analysis, 
financial and operational feasibility and visitor impact analysis. So the only viable site that was identified in the pro forma is indicated here in red. And it's adjacent to the Easterly uh, Wastewater Treatment Plant. Now, some of the program amenities uh, considered include the following. Um, soccer, rugby, cricket, lacrosse, basketball, volleyball. So the performa, uh, essentially, one of the major tasks that they had were uh, reaching out to key stakeholders and potential user groups. Um, which included, you know, VYSL and a lot of other um, uh, athletic leagues. Now, uh, the end result of the performa is essentially um, lots of different scenarios for for full build out. And one of the key things that they recommended were a minimum amount of uh, fields in order for it to be economically viable. So, what's next? Uh, this is true possibly of all of the projects that we'll talk about tonight, uh, but uh, uh, securing a funding source uh, is, is a major uh, obstacle for this to move forward. Uh, environmental assessment, plans, entitlements, construction, and uh, a direction to move forward with the site that was identified in the performa. Trails and trailheads. Uh, the city has over 17 miles of well-used multi-use and uh, nature trails. The city also has significant inventory of trails that are only uh, partially documented. And Vacaville also has 2,000 acres of open space, but very little in the way of uh, formal trailheads, maps, uh, trails, and adopted rules. Now, most of the existing uh, mileage that is accounted for as a formal trail is located at Lagoon Valley Park. There are currently no uh, city-run programs operating in our, tra our trails, uh, but they are heavily used by non-city uh, organizations like schools and scouts. And when it comes to development, the city has recently adopted DIF that includes a provision for additional trails and trailheads. But that hasn't kicked in quite yet, so uh, mid-2023 we'll essentially start collecting um, funds to build some of the trails. Because the collection of the funds uh, is reliant solely on development, uh, there's no horizon on when we could have enough to fund uh, any of these uh, potential projects. What's next for trails? Uh, we recognize that uh, there will be a day when funding uh, trail and trail trailhead projects will be possible now that DIF is being collected for that particular reason. And so we offer an alternative of recommending a trail uh, master plan project. Uh, this uh, master plan document would be a tool to help us, uh, uh, our, de our department in particular, establish some development design guidelines in a holistic manner. And I believe this might be our last project, and it's a new multi-purpose recreation center. So in 2019, uh, I alluded to the fact that the city had commissioned a recreational uh, facility assessment. Now, the purpose of the assessment was to gather preliminary information on our existing facilities to enable staff, commission, and council the ability to make informed decisions regarding the facilities. And the results varied on uh, the three sites that were uh, studied. Uh, of the three uh, facilities that were assessed, uh, 
the two that provided active or sports programming are the Duke and Davis Street Centers. So because of the outcome of the preliminary assessment, a recommendation was made in the subsequent Park and Rec Master Plan uh, for a new multi-purpose recreation center that could fulfill some of the needs of our growing community. So in the uh, Park and Rec Master Plan, the facility is estimated to be 50 to 70,000 square feet, uh, but the final programming would be uh, determining the final size of the facility. And what I, what I mean by programming is essentially, are we going to have, are we going to run gymnastics out of here? Or are we going to run basketball that has a minimum uh, size requirement? And that'll dictate what the building looks like. Uh, while a tentative site is listed as Centennial Park, other sites uh, still can be considered. And generally, staff recommends an existing city-owned site for fiscal reasons. Uh, if we eliminate having to procure or uh, acquire additional land that we currently don't own, then that's another cost. And in preliminary discussion, staff has recommended the potential program elements listed on the screen now. So what's next for the new multi-purpose recreation center? Uh, as previously mentioned, the Park and Rec Master Plan identifies Centennial Park as a possible location um, uh, because of its pro uh, central location within the city. Uh, a current effort to wrap up the Centennial Park Master Plan includes such a facility and should be wrapped up sometime this year. And regardless of the final location, we are indeed in need of funding mechanism for environmental clearances, entitlements, and construction. I just want to highlight that uh, the site plan and the rendering that's up on the screen is actually um, a brand new multi-use uh, purpose recreation center that is uh, going to be constructed in Elk Grove uh, that is being managed by Elk Grove CSD. And uh, so I've been sort of collaborating with my counterpoint there and she's been sharing information with me about their bidding process. And so I've got all of the, uh, their very recent data and uh, costs for that facility that should start, it should break ground sometime this year. And with that, uh, the commission recommendation is for the presentation of all five projects to council with a prioritization of a new multi-purpose recreation facility and staff concurs for the reasons that are listed above. And with that, we'd like to request that by simple motion, the city council directs staff to explore funding opportunities for a new multi-purpose recreation center. Thank you for the presentation. Any member of the council have any questions? All right, questions, uh, council member Stockton. Can you just go back to slide three? I always find these ranking things super interesting to see who wanted what first and they're not weighted. And so I want to look at that while maybe the public is chatting. So I'm going to have a photo because I can't write all that down. And I want to provide a little bit of context. So this, this ranking was from our first presentation. Uh -huh. And obviously, so the way that it worked was the more points that you uh, sort of assigned to a project, uh, that was your top priority. So 10 is actually number one. 10 is good. Correct. Uh, and I should indicate, obviously, that 
in the subsequent meeting that the commission had, obviously priorities changed because it's not the same number one. And that's because we brought additional information that provided some context for some of the information that we had shared in the first presentation. So I guess my next question would be for you, Mr. Reggie, uh, Mr. Director, um, where would you rank these? I would rank them along with the commission's recommendation. Okay. There was a lengthy conversation at both meetings, the meeting in November and the meeting in uh, January, uh, for hours with this with our Park and Rec Commission, and you know they're the experts, but at the same time we work together to come to these conclusions. And based on my experience here in the city of Vacaville as a recreation manager for uh, you know 15 years and now the director, I've seen um, that the city needs an indoor recreation facility, right? We have the Georgia Duke Sports Center that was erected, I think, in, in the 80s, and that's the only facility we have. We've tried to remedy this um, with working with the school district and having joint use agreements, but to no fault of the school district, they're using their facilities as well. So it's hard to get creative with scheduling to get in, the, in those facilities. And so I would absolutely go with the recommendation from the, from the commission and their work, the work that they did. So I got a follow up. Okay. So the first one that was recommended was the Davis Street procurement. Correct. What option, what, which option do you recommend and why? And to follow up with that, I don't know anything about hockey, how many kids are playing hockey. I know it's privately owned. I know it's really expensive to buy the gear to play hockey and some of that stuff too. But um, could you explain which option you think is best for, for that portion and um, whether or not if the city bought the whole building, um, they would keep those rinks or if they would be used for other activities? Uh, you know, that's a great, no, great question. Great question. I think there's so many unknowns to that facility. We're not sure what the condition is um, of the other pods. Um, and so we wouldn't know what kind of um, additional maintenance and construction that we'd have to do to that facility. It's almost better to, I shouldn't say this, but tear it down. And it's, it's a great spot, great location, but we, there are just too many unknowns. Um, so for us, we would say we would continue to lease um, the facility so that way we have that option, maybe make some minor upgrades to it um, on the basketball side. But if we were going to invest in purchasing that facility, we'd have to do an analysis and have an expert come in and do that. Um, and then you admit, I'm sorry, and then you'd mentioned um, the cost for the newer facility, similar to what Elk Grove has done. What is that cost? The for the Elk Grove facility in yes. particular. So they have, they must have a really good consultant. They had seven bids come between 29 and $30 million. Wow. So it's really tight, which, you know, in a past life, I, when I worked in consulting, I know that if I'm getting seven bids that are coming in that tight, that's a, that's a really good set of plans. Um, they had a performer that they conducted in 2019 that uh, had estimated, um, the the facility costing close to 27 million so that tells me that either prices are coming down or so the general rule of thumb is that inflation has gone up more than double digits um you know in the last couple of years which is an anomaly um, but for whatever reason this is coming in pretty close to what they had estimated 
lastly, just wanted to thank you both and as well as the Parks and Recs Commission. A tremendous amount of work obviously went into this. And so I really appreciate the in-depth analysis, the discussion that you had and um, bringing this to us today with kind of the why behind the, the order and, and the need for the community. So I just wanted to say thank you. Councilmember Silva. Yeah, thank you. And I'm sorry, can you go back to the, the list of ranked projects? Um, so I know in the in the past I've, I've talked about a senior center. Um, Duke was recently renovated. Um, so I'd like to see that back on there. It's uh, inter interesting. Um, but I think there's because there's different different needs um, that we're trying to address. Uh, Alpatch Park has come up publicly uh, when, you know, how do we complete that? Um, request for pool has come. We've heard about that with trying to tie that into other projects, other development projects, uh, which gets, I think, a lot of our minds, you know, uh, thinking about how we can maximize it. Uh, the family fun zone, uh, would that be part of the Centennial Master Plan or is that like something that segmented? Yeah, that would be a part of the Centennial Park Master Plan, a, a, a phase of the Centennial Park Master Plan. Yes. Okay. And then, um, okay, so, you know, um, and so what you're looking for today is to continue, uh, whether or not you should continue looking into uh, coming back to council with options uh, with some numbers is for those top rank five. Is that what you're looking for today? No, what we're looking for is the council to direct staff to look for um, uh, funding options to go after a multi-use sports facility. And a disclaimer, I will say the other projects that are on the list, we won't stop making the attempts to get to those projects, like for the Alpatch Park Master Plan or the Nelson Park Master Plan. We're continually working with like California Consulting, looking for grants and looking for other ways to make those projects happen as well. We're just saying that this project is the number one priority for, from staff's perspective and from the commission's perspective. But uh, those can, other projects, will we will try to push those to make them happen. Okay, thank you for clarifying. Can you go back to the slide with the multi-purpose the example? Talking about the Elk Road one. So just, I know we're using this as a reference. Um, the and I'm sorry. Go back one more previous slide. Uh, so these listed. This is this is just. It's not. We don't have any data on this. It's just something we're suggesting, roughly based on current data and and demands. Uh, sorry, potential program elements. That's correct. Uh, we have a little bit of. So all of these projects are within the implementation chapter of the Park and Rec Master Plan. So to Director Hubbard's point. None of them are going away. They're documented and our intent is to eventually execute as many as possible. Uh, so some there's some data points in the Park and Rec Master Plan that identify some scope. For instance, they identified the fact that a potential site could be centennial. That's in the Park and Rec Master Plan. They identify a size of 50 to 70,000 square feet. So that those data points are directly from the Park and Rec Master Plan. And some of the potential program elements are, are derived from internal discussions with staff. So for instance, to Director Hubbard's point, if we continued our sublease uh, at Davis Street, you know, that's a recommendation because there's no way that we can execute or build a, a new park and rec, or I apologize, multi-purpose rec center in the next two years. And so we have to have a contingency plan and our best bet is to stay where, where we are and run the programs 
where they currently are ran out of. But eventually, potentially, this would be a new home for gymnastics and basketball and indoor pickleball or whatever we decide to locate in the facility. So, mm -hmm. what do you mean, and expansion? Sorry. Um, as as uh, Nemo explained earlier, we do have wait lists for a lot of our programs, so we don't have enough room at the Skate Center and or the Georgie Duke Center. So having a larger facility would allow us to expand programming as well. I think the, you know, I know the indoor soccer, over, so over break, um, you know, there was a lot of folks signed up for the private uh, indoor soccer league or program. Um, you know, every, a lot of folks are sticking around. I don't, I don't see that trend really changing over the holidays or the winter months or dark months. Um, finding a place that's, you know, I know we're having a wet season, <clears throat> um, but I think in uh, that building's extra wet inside. Uh, but I think that, you know, the, the point is that people are looking, like I, I would agree, people are looking for indoor um, space or they're looking for lighted space, which is another issue um, because they, you know, people are looking to be active. Uh, you know, not to go to a, elaborate story but when I lived in LA you know it's it's unfortunate uh you know the situation I know it's come up with conversations that I've been in for maybe four or five years now uh but there because there's no parks literally like there's no parks if you ever look on a map you see if you see green fields it's a golf course um and so you have like soccer fields that are divided up uh four ways one large adult soccer field four ways to have four different teams practicing then you have like 10 feet of space on the perimeter where if you're not on a team, you're, you're practicing. And uh, even the, uh, um, the school sites, they'll, they'll shut off the lights once the teams are done. But then um, all the youth, the teens, like they'll turn on their cell phone lights set around the perimeter. And like, I don't know how, how the heck they see the basket, but like they're, they're banking them. So um, I, I don't like, I'm very mind when I see these in these experience, like when I see the resiliency in people, but it's a matter, it's more of a matter of just making sure that there's a place for people to go um, you know, that's safe and that they're, you know, doing something positive. Uh, and obviously it's showing that there are a lot of families are desiring that. Um, my, my issue, my, I guess my, my feedback for this, and I might be solo on this, but, you know, uh, I shared it at a one meeting uh, randomly um, on a related topic, but what I've heard from the community, so there's, there's a couple of things. So um, number one, I see multi-purpose rooms that have like this eighth mile it's like a multi-story building. There's like this eight mile track on the, on the interior side of it on the second story. It's open up to the first floor. Um, one vision, and I know it go up, you know, I'm not, it's gonna go above the 30, but um, one vision has that, you know, three, stack it up. So three stories, for example. And then um, these, uh, it's in a, a place that, that can handle ballet, ballet, a place that can handle dance, a place that can handle jujitsu, the different martial arts, um, you know, Muay Thai, whatnot. Uh, a lot of local business owners are struggling to find affordable uh, places to rent, um, you know, in their business model. It's, it's not something that's super lucrative. And so I'm, I'm curious to see something that takes a very small footprint that helps address many families of, of all ages. Uh, and that's where it comes down to the, the next feedback I was getting from from uh, folks and a lot of it's anecdotal. I don't have a large study on it. And I don't, you know, I would imagine we don't either. Um, but I don't, uh, there were, uh, what I heard common with a lot of families is I wish, I wish I could take all my kids to one spot. I didn't have to like run them across different parts of town. 
Um, and then likewise, they, you know, they can have their adult workout session while the kids explore whatever it is. And so if, if this is something that council would, uh, wants to proceed with, I would ask council to support, um, staff looking into some type of option like that to either eliminate it or, or not, um, to where we can build space that can be subleased out, replenish some type of cost, also allow it large enough to host events to supplement, you know, some type of cost similar to VPAT. Um, I don't think it's going to be lucrative at all um, for, the, for the city, but I think it's a, a balance between um, helping uh, a lot of these smaller businesses out, helping out the demands uh, and requests and interest of families across the town, um, centralizing that in, in this uh, venue. Uh, it's not exactly a sports complex per se, but it's something that um, it's something that can host these events that, again, have a smaller footprint than some of the other suggestions. Uh, so that would be my feedback on this particular item. Um, we still haven't opened up to the public questions, and then we're going to bring it back. Can you guys do that? That's being a smart, smart um, No, thank, thank you, Mayor. Thank you, Mayor. Um, I'll, I'll, I have more comments, but I'll, I'll, I will do I'll that honor that. Yeah. Thank you. Um, not to cut you off, but we'll, we'll bring comments back. Uh, Councilmember Chavin. Thank you. Um, a couple of questions. The Nelson Park that is adjacent to Vaca Pena, um, you had stated that uh, at one time there was supposed to be another field built. However, it would have encroached on the school district. And that at the time the district wasn't interested in selling the property. What were you trying to accomplish by um, in, in communicating with the school district? Well, as Nemo alluded to earlier, uh, historically the school, school districts and cities have joint use agreements and they share use. Right. Uh, this was previous to, um, unfortunately, school shootings and people getting on campuses um, uh, and doing things they shouldn't be doing, right? So the schools started to uh, fence their areas in. And right. so where the additional field was going to go for Nelson Park, it would have protruded over into the school district property, but now it's fenced off. And so we can't, there's no um, appetite for them to, to have that use agreement and, and go that route again. So. Okay, so I guess what I'm uh, trying to learn is, um, was any did any discussion take place with the district in regards to selling that piece of property so that you could go forward with the uh, with the additional field. If nothing else is over there near There's, the- there, there are portables there now. Oh, they have portables yeah. there for over? Yes. Okay, then <laughs> I will, I'll let that one go. Thank you. I'm not finished though. Um, the Davis uh, complex. <laughs> there is a waiting list for children um, for the various sports. And by the time we uh, get something in place, they will be probably would have aged out or aged beyond uh, their desire to want to play that sport. Um, so I can't see, personally, I can't see waiting much longer to get something else in place for these other children that are interested in uh, in, in the various sports where we have the wait list. So I am definitely, I'm gonna say, I, I am really interested in a multi-purpose recre recreation facility. So I won't go any, go 
And plus with the uh, Davis Street property, there's a lot, in my opinion, there's a, a lot to be desired there for the entire facility. And I couldn't see the city uh, investing. Uh, there are a few options that we have, you know, to lease or to possibly purchase that one pot that we have or purchasing the entire uh, facility. I'm thinking that the amount of money it would take to bring it up to standards and to expand would not be worth all, it wouldn't be worth putting the money into it. And so I could see looking at the multi-purpose. Those are my, that's my reasoning for that. A sports fuel complex is ideal. However, right now, I don't think it would be accessible to all. I don't think it would be easy. It wouldn't be easily accessible to the entire city because of the location and uh, some families that wouldn't have the means to patron the park and be able to take advantage of it. Um, so that would be on my back burner. Um, Do you have any questions? I'm going to open it up. Questions. Oh, I'm sorry. You did say questions. I, I apologize. Uh, I'm going to come up with a question because I, I'm not ready. Okay. And my yeah, final, you have questions. And then we'll yeah, come I up. have a, and I apologize. I don't want to be like my colleagues on the other end. They just so ramble on and on. Okay. As I move on, I do need to say this, and I did share it with, That's right. with the city manager that I was going to put it out there. And he's told me there is, there would be a time, another time, that we would get around to the neighbor, neighborhood parks. Remember, I did mention that to you that I was going to put it out here. And um, I would like to, and is this the time that I would ask them to possibly speak with you about getting on the agenda again to let us know what the status of the neighborhood parks are? in regards to, you know, we have some districts that have uh, parks that need quite a bit of help. Yeah, so let's so do that's this. A question. It's a great question, but Thank on you. this project. And yes. whether we do it after this or we can do it. I can the, quickly answer that but question. But if you have a quick answer, okay. then we have yeah. more questions. I think we're going to cover that at your Mar March 17th meeting, if I'm not Wonderful. mistaken. Is that correct? So when we do that. That's, that was my Perfect. question. Yeah, okay. I ended with my question. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, Councilmember Roberts. I just had comments always. Okay, well, I'm going to open it up to the public. Thank you. Anyone want to comment on this? Thank you all for the reappointment also. Um, I would know the chair of Parks and Rec Commission gives a bio break at two hours. Um, so four hours is a long time to go that you all are sitting there um, on your tushes and not going potty. Okay, um, so I did just du double check with Council Borba, wanted to make sure I speak for myself and not on behalf of the commission. Um, but I would say, you know, the slide with all the rankings, it was really hard coming into that commission meeting and trying to figure out like, how do I rank all of these? These are all a priority to really all of us on the commission, but for myself that, um, you know, they're all important. They all need work. Um, we all live in, and play in this town. And so we know what some of our facilities look like. And so it's really important that, um, just to note that it was really hard to, to rank those. Um, and also, you know, I think that um, for myself, like just really ready to see the Measure M's 
Measure M funds put to use. Um, this is a really exciting opportunity to build our own brick and mortar um, multi-use, um, multi-purpose center. Um, we know that there's a need. Uh, the Parks and Rec team has brought over multiple times, you know, presentations on programs that have wait lists. Um, I think post-COVID, they've seen um, increase in participation. And so it's really time for us um, to build something great and beautiful. I also had similar comments about building it high and having a walking track indoor, indoors. Um, and so, you know, I think it's, it's an exciting opportunity. Um, I also would note that, um, you know, we need a facility, an indoor facility that we can use year round, not only just in the winter, but also now we're in summer when we're facing high heat. There's, you know, issues now with air quality and fires. And so I think it's also an important opportunity for us to have an indoor facility that we can use um, and have kids come indoors when um, the air quality isn't good. Um, and let me see if I had any other comments or thoughts. Um, Let's see. Um, and I think also to your note, Council Member um, Chapman, you know, I think for myself personally, too, I think we still need to look at neighborhood parks and and definitely start investing in those, too. And so um, getting Measure M funds out to the neighborhood parks. But thank you all for considering this. And um, I hope we can move forward on a new multipurpose center. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Anyone else like to speak on this matter? Seeing none. I'll bring it back to the council and I do see uh, lights lighting up. I, I will simply say thank you for the presentation to begin with. And clearly this is an important subject, both to the commission, to the community, to this council. It is interesting. I, I'm not the only one. It looks like that looked like, how do you rank choice priorities when you want to pick them all and there's not enough money for them all. And so sometimes priorities have to be chosen and, um, my questions got answered as I reviewed this and also listening to the questions, but I would say this, it is important when we look at how do you program raising children here myself, um, using the rink space, you, you have all these things and there's just not enough space. And you know, what is, you know, what is that forward thinking uh, future of Vacaville? And, and yet all of these, if we could, we could have them all, we would, and the neighborhood parks are important as well. And so, um, I, my understanding and my belief, and you shared it tonight, and that is selecting this as a priority is, is investing staff's time and resources to go after something so that we can prioritize because staff has to be able to focus on it and that's what you're looking for. And yet at the same time, any one of these other projects could become fully or partially funded or, or in parallel prioritization, but the emphasis is to say we need direction and this is the recommendation. So the last comment, then I'll, I'll start uh, calling on my colleagues, is, um, it is it would be an expensive item. And yet when we look at the master plan for Centennial and what we're trying to create for Vacaville, um, it requires an investment and a commitment. And so that is, that is something that I, I wholeheartedly support. I also would say that year round two, thank you for your leadership working with the commission. And that is, is now that everyone has ranked choice, a lot of times it's probably with personal, you know, feelings, opinions, personal agendas, right? I want this, I want that. It doesn't mean that one would look at this and say, here's the number one priority. And somebody else says, well, you're wrong. Cause it's just the opposite. It's sometimes personal choice and experience in life. 
and yet you walked the commission through an exercise of understanding the real needs and then collectively driving down to a needs assess uh, assessment from 10 to 5 to now really getting to it and identifying this as a priority. And that task is not easy, so thank you. And with that, I'm going to call on my colleagues, uh, Councilmember Roberts. Ah, there we go. Um, yeah, actually happened to sit in the Parks and Rec meeting where you guys did all this live and figured it out. Um, yeah, generally I agree with the, the list, um, but going forward, um, this is, Parks and Rec is in like a fairly unique position where you're not just for the city, it's also part of tourism and economic development. So I'd highly recommend everybody, all you people get in one room, like for example, the Davis Street procurement with the ice rinks there. A lot of people don't know the NHL sponsors local ice rinks and dumps a ton of money into them because that generates interest in hockey. Uh, 